The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? And welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season, or perhaps less. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Vinny Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film these days. And uh, this is a very special episode of Cancel Too Soon, because we have a guest we've never had on this particular podcast before. They are an expert... In the fields of music and Adam Scott, we have with us Angie Seibold. Hello. I have slept my way onto this podcast. (laughs) I wish I could sleep. Uh, (laughs) Angie is, of course, uh, 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 closely related to Whitney Seibold. How related? Marriage. How related was it? (laughs) Marriage. So so related we got married. It's so hot right now, you guys. I'm a little (laughs) out of it. You're going to have to forgive me on this week's episode. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Angie is on this show because Angie is an expert at uh, MTV in 1994, which is where we will be dwelling this week. This is a very, very interesting chapter of TV history that we are unleashing upon you. Uh, This is... This particular episode is about the first ever live-action scripted television series in MTV history. It's not their first show. They had already done reality TV. They'd already done animation. But live-action scripted, this was their first foray. And boy, is it the most MTV thing ever created. The most MTV thing, the most 1994 thing specifically yeah, if ever you, created. If you want to know what it was like to be in the 1990s, like, you know when you watch older movies and it's like, oh man, the 80s were so neat. I love watching Big Trouble in Little China and The Breakfast Club. Yeah, no. Those, <laughs> that wasn't what it was like to be in the 80s. But what it was like to be in the 90s, for at least the handful of weeks that this show was on the air in the summer of 1994, exactly this. This is exactly what this is all we were thinking about. We were this is all, all the, Jack Noseworthy. Yep, we were all, we were, this was the soundtrack to our entire lives. Like, all of the soundtrack. There's so much music in this series, and we're going to have to talk extensively about that, because it's weird how much incredible music is in this show. Uh, Angie, do you want to tell people what the show is? The show we are talking about today <laughs> is none other than Dead at 21. MTV's foray into sci-fi. Today is your birthday. You're 20 years old. Life has just begun. Life as you know it is over. You learn today that nothing is what it seems. You're not who you think you are. In truth, you are the subject of a covert government project. One that implanted a microchip in your brain. That explains the dreams that tear at your subconscious that slash your soul. They're coming for you now, so you hit the road with the only friend you have left. Starting today, you have one year to figure out who made you, who's after you, and how to stop them. Succeed, and you live. Fail, and you're dead at 21. Wednesdays at 10, 
on MTV. Call, yeah. call it the Gen X Files. Yeah, basically. Hey, um, the uh, show has everything in the 90s. It's mm. got uh, paranoia about the government. It's got don't trust anyone over 30. It's got hip young kids and bare midriffs on motorcycles. <laughs> it's got shootouts. It's, a, it's got uh, uh, and music out the wazoo. And, and a very healthy streak of uh, kind of broody introspection. Yeah. Uh, which was really... Uh, one of the defining features of the 1990s. Uh, yeah. The soundtrack is a 10-disc Rhino box set. And that's just episode one. <laughs> like, seriously, like I, I was watching this show, and again, the pod, really briefly, it's Jack Noseworthy stars as a 20-year-old who, as a baby, had a microchip put in his head, because you know how microchip, microchips go. Ed Bellamy. Uh, and he, uh, he's super intelligent, but he, his brain will like fry itself to pieces when he turns 21 years old. So it's basically the fugitive with a ticking clock and a sci-fi element. And... Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, what were we talking about? It's so hot. Uh, so, micro- yeah. Microchips yeah, in the brain. Microchips in children. I had something I was going to say because you, you set it up, and I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to say next. Oh. And then I'm like, I don't know. Well, it was know. about the soundtrack. Tell us about oh, the Oh, it was music. about the soundtrack. Yeah. So, like, but every single episode of this show is wall-to-wall songs. And we're talking, like, the biggest hits of the era. Like, every single 22-minute episode features between, I would say, about 10 to 20 top 10 hits of the contemporary era. And if you were going to get the licensing rights to this music, this show will never be on home video. Because the soundtrack alone would cost millions of dollars. I don't think anyone's got that kind of scratch for the show like with as oh. small an audience as this. The one thing they may look out on is it seems like a lot of these songs came from the same label. So yeah, like maybe. maybe if you like get in sync with Warner or something, you'd have a shot, but I think there'd also be a lot of like random score interspersed I, in there. I wanted to point uh, this website out to you guys. I was just looking up MTV Top Hits of 1994 Yay! and uh-huh. found this old HTML website that's still up. Oh my oh god, god, it's lime it's, green yeah, it's with like black text. All lime green with like plain black text. Oh, and is it Radio Cities? Uh, it's it's something called jjhealth.com, which probably was you know pre- over, previously yeah. Lycos or something. But yeah, it has one through ten, more later, dude, and then number one hundred, yeah. <laughs> and then oh. links to MTV Online, top ninety six of ninety three. Oh my gosh! Wait, wait, real fast, let's let's oh. talk, talk it down to the top ten. Okay, uh, the top ten uh, MTV songs of nineteen ninety four. Go go in ascending order. Go to go to uh, one last. Uh, number ten, Amazing by Aerosmith. Okay, number that's nine, a very weird virtual uh, reality sex music video with uh, Alicia Silverstone. Yes, and um, uh, does Jason London? I thought it was Stephen Dorff, but that might have no. Been it's it's definitely one of the Londons. I don't remember which one. <laughs> Uh, number nine is Disarm by Smashing Pumpkins. Okay. okay. Uh, number eight, Fantastic Voyage by Coolio. Nice. Uh, number seven, All Apologies by Nirvana. Uh-huh. Number six, Self Esteem by Offspring. Cool. Uh, number five, What a Man, Salt and Pepper. What a mighty, mighty good man, indeed. Uh, number four, Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. Yes. Number three, Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. <laughs> number two, I'll Make Love to You. Uh, it says, I'll Make You Love Me by Voice <laughs> Two Men. <laughs> I'll I don't think make that's quite... you love me. It's a little. No. 
little darker in the, in that version. Um, I'll make you love me. Most and of uh, those songs show up in the soundtrack. And number right. one was is uh, Basket Case. Basket yeah. Case, one word by Green Day, one word. But yeah. here's one thing I do want to point out, and this top ten really illuminates it. Like yeah. we're saying it's wall to wall MTV, but it's a very specific subset of MTV, especially for the '90s, because. Mm. MTV, they did play the hip-hop, they played metal, they played a little bit of pop for whatever pop was in 94, Mm -hmm. but wall-to-wall what you're getting in this show for the most part is alternative rock, because 1994 is really the crest Mm -hmm. of that wave. We've had Nirvana and Pearl Jam around long enough that they're an institution, and now their imitators have arrived, and now the floodgates have just opened. So if you've got three chords in the truth, like you're showing up on MGV. Well, and what's really, really cool about it, if, if, again, looking back, is even though these are all bands that are trying to chase sort of similar trends... Again, the show is mostly alternative and grunge rock, but there's some hip hop in the in the series as well. Um, it's interesting how non-uniform the overall styles of music are, yeah. And how like you will have like twenty of like the biggest hit songs of the era, but they don't all sound like they're from the same album. Like a lot of music will at any point in history, really, where they just sort of like congeals around a single idea. There was a lot of Eclecticism, yeah, I think, in, in, and, yeah. in popular oh, music in the '90s, which was it was uh, a really cool time for music. Yeah. As a result, An- another pause uh, on the same lime green uh, website. You can download MIDI versions of pop songs. <gasps> oh, please glorious. That still do that. I, I just, yeah, yeah, bookmark that for <laughs> yeah. later. We're gonna need that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you can get uh, uh, Collective Souls Shine in MIDI <gasps> format. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about before we even get into the show, like how that kind of a soundtrack was possible, because MTV was a very different animal back in the nineties. It's not definitely. It's not just because they had music, which they did at the time, but they had almost unlimited rights to the music. If they showed your music video on their network, they could play that music at any time, and your song could all of a sudden just be the theme song to a show or a segment or a news segment or whatever and that was just fine so all of this all of this music MTV just had yeah and, well, and, and I know uh, I know there was a sorry there's a, a a mandate at MTV that if they were going to have any kind of show I, I heard Mike Judge talk about this about Beavis and Butthead that there had to be a music video element to whatever they were going to put on the air. So the whole idea of Beavis and Butthead sitting around and watching those videos was something that MTV required. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that was probably the same with something like Dead at 21. It's like, well, you know, we have all these songs. You have to play these songs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very much the through line of MTV in this era, too, because we are entering that phase where they're really starting to fully immerse themselves into programming that isn't necessarily all about music videos or music but yet they kind of can't help themselves at this point like mtv's persona is still like we're all about the music of the day we're kind of the kingmakers here we're gonna we're gonna influence what you listen to and so even though on a weekend on mtv you might have house of style which was their fashion show with cindy crawford you might have chris Connolly in the big picture which was their film review show even those shows are wall-to-wall music because yeah. at this point, MTV can't really escape that identity that it's all about music television. And granted, I would much rather have that than the pendulum having swung the other way. Hmm. Um, I don't know if either of you have seen this on Twitter, but there is a Twitter account that literally just posts MTV's current weekly schedule. 
and it is the saddest thing Aww. this Gen Xer has ever seen. Is it like what? What is it? What is it? It's consistent literally ninety-eight percent that show ridiculousness. I don't even. Know uh, I think is. it's Rob Deerdeck. Forgive me, I'm forty-five. Uh, it, it's like <laughs> you know more than I do. It's basically like pranks. Oh. It's it's pranks and oh. fails and goofy oh. shit. It's like- and uh, well, like a, a child of the whole jackass phenomenon, pretty yeah. much. Except yeah. I think a little tamer. And then or there's a like punk. a That was the uh, yeah. uh, Ashton Kutcher the, this, version. Yeah. This is the new that. Uh, and so uh, there's essentially a 15 minute block on Fridays well, where it's like videos. Well, it used to be, and this is something I miss about what cable television initially was. It used to be the idea was. The main networks, your CBSs, your NBCs, your ABCs, and to a lesser degree, your Fox, were like kind of try to be everything to everyone. They would have scripted sitcoms, scripted dramas, news, movies of the week, kids' shows. They'd have everything. When cable networks are coming out, they were a little bit more focused on having a distinct personality. We are who you, Disney was who you come to for family-friendly content, that kind of thing. Or uh, Comedy Central or the Comedy Channel, as it was originally called, and I think it was called like Ha or something initially. There, there were yeah. two networks and they yeah, emerged. That's right. Was, um, well, yeah, there was Ha and there was one that was just called The, the Comedy, Comedy Channel. Channel. There you go. And so they were just, here's what you do. We only do comedy. And MTV was literally music television we're your radio station but with cool images and that's kind of what they were and that's what they leaned into and it was kind of cool that they had an actual personality and a purpose the the most galling thing about the the big change uh, at at some point i think in the early 2000s they Mm. said uh that mtv doesn't stand for music television anymore that was a hell of a it's just random letters now it doesn't stand for anything and the most galling they had the same logo it's like the gigantic m with the small sort of punk rock tv written on it and then the caption, music television. And they simply sliced the music television part off, and it looks like it's been sliced off. Like, the oh, bottom wow. is just missing now. Oh, my God. So, yeah, they, they got rid of the music television, and now there's just this, like, bleeding wound where it used to be. But music television, MTV, wasn't just, we just play all different kinds of music. Like, no, that was VH1. Yep. MTV was about young people, young music, what's hip mm-hmm. and what's edgy. It's not even necessarily what's popular. Mm-hmm. They would have stuff that was actually not necessarily popular yet that could then get popularized mm-hmm. by being on MTV. And as a result, I think, when they started getting into other forms of programming, stuff that was in your face. That was kind of the idea. The real world was really salacious and kinky Mm. and weird for the era. And then we had their uh, animated anthology series, Liquid Television. Oh, so great. Which introduced stuff like Beavis and Butthead and Eon Flux and... um, uh, the the original creation from that uh, horror anthology movie Trick or Treat, Sam, okay, oh, Trick or Treater, yeah, yeah. that started as an animated short on Liquid Television. All of this stuff was basically just like, "Hey kids, we're the edgiest, coolest thing in town. We're not going to try to like pander to you or whatever like that. We're just going to do only stuff we think is super cool." And from that mentality, we get Dead at Twenty One. Which is incorporating elements of other, like, fugitive on-the-road shows, like The Fugitive. Qu- quite literally in one episode. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll get to that. Very, very much. A lot of The Fugitive, a little bit of stuff like Incredible Hulk or whatever, but like, but with that sort of X-Files paranoid conspiracy yeah, bent. Yeah. It's, it's important to remember how much 70s nostalgia there was at this time. Yeah. You know, the whole 20-year cycle. Um, you know, this was what the whole reruns of you know, the Brady Bunch were really, really big. Uh, in fact, Jack Noseworthy, at the time he was making Dead at 21, was also co-starring in the Brady Bunch movie. Oh, was he in that he one? Was one of, like, he was like the 
Marsha, the guy who was Breckin trying Meyer. No, no, Breckenmeyer was in it, but I think he, I think he might have actually been in the sequel. Oh, no, like, no. Breckenmeyer was in the Beverly Hillbillies mm, movie no. from the nineties. No, <laughs> I think no Breckenmeyer. I think he had a small role. He had like a cameo. <laughs> no, he had a cameo in Bre- in Brady Bunch the movie two, the Brady Bunch sequel where it was Breckenmeyer like, did. Or I think he did, didn't he? Wasn't or he Jack in that? Did. I think Hang you on. officially need a game now. No, Is no. it Breckenmeyer or Jack? No, 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 no. I know the difference. Look, I'm the not confusing. Guy, right? the, no, I'm not confusing. This the is two. not a Dylan McDermott, Dermot Maroney thing. I'm pretty sure Breckenmeyer had like a tiny cameo in the Brady oh, yeah. Bunch sequel as a guy in like a diner when like uh, <laughs> Cin- not Cin- it's Marsha, Cindy, and Jan. Jan Jan had invented Bobby, a boyfriend. Jan, Marcia, Peter, yeah. Jan had invented a boyfriend and was like going out on town with like a with like a, a a dummy pretending to have a boyfriend, and this guy was like watching her and like sort of amused, thinking it was a performance art piece. But Jack Noseworthy was in the original Brady Bunch movie. He was. The best friend of the guy who was trying to date Marsha, okay. and right. I, I think uh, uh, he had like he had like a line about like like it's it's harder to date her than it is to get into a Pearl Jam concert, like one of the most nineties <laughs> lines, like one of the most nineties right. lines so, you've ever heard. Uh, Jack Noseworthy, uh-huh. and I had to look him up. Jack Noseworthy was in the Brady Bunch movie. Yeah, it was. Told you. Uh, he uh, he played a character named Eric Dittmeyer. Yep. Whereas Brecken Meyer uh-huh. uh, was not in a Brady Bunch movie. Okay, I'm confusing <laughs> Brecken Meyer with someone else, and I respect that. Uh, Brecken Meyer was in a Freddy sequel. Yeah, he, he was, he was in, in Freddy, the he was, he was in the Craft. He was. He was in Clueless. He was in Clueless. He was, in, yeah, he was, in, in, he was in Herbie Fully Loaded in the mid two thousands. But well, no, that makes him good. He person. was not not in any of the movies we're talking about that okay, were based I'm on seventies sitcoms. I'm, I'm glad we cleared that up. I'm going to figure out who was in the Brady Bunch sequel because there, there was like a small cameo or like before they were famous. But but uh, I think I get your point here. Like obviously yeah. we are dealing with a lot of people who at this point are positioned. To rise, maybe become yeah. the next big thing. Yeah. And who better to position as your next big thing is this very telegenic, mm-hmm. blonde hair, center part, big lipped, little dreamboat of a guy. What I mainly remember about watching Dead at 21 in this era mm-hmm. is that my mom watched it with me and we both had a raging crush on Jack Noseworthy. <laughs> yeah. And then mm-hmm. he just kind of fell off he, the map. He had a couple of like large ish roles in movies, but they were never good movies to have large ish roles in. Like he played like Barbed Wire's brother. Mm-hmm. And like that yeah, wasn't was, that uh, wasn't exactly a breakout role. He was in the David Kep film, The Trigger Effect, which wasn't... It's a good movie, but, it's, he was in that, yeah. uh, but like, not a lot of people saw yeah, that. He was in, he was yeah. in an indie film called Mojave Moon. He was in, uh, of course, he was in uh, Breakdown mm-hmm. and oh. uh, uh, Event Horizon. Those are, like, Ooh. the two I remember him from. Y- you know who was in a very Brady sequel? <laughs> who was in a very Brady sequel, William? Whit Hubley. Hey! hey! We're bringing it back around. Okay, Full so, circle. So I guess we can... Di- let's talk about the we cast. Can right? dive into <laughs> let's let's, let's dive in. Hold on. The cast for Dead at 21. There's only three people who are in every single episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of whom is Jack Noseworthy. He plays the protagonist. Uh, then there is his... Uh, 
they have romantic chemistry, but they they're not together together. Mm. Uh, I th- they almost hook up in one episode. Yeah. Uh, Maria, she's played by Lisa Dean Ryan, who is just sure. coming off of an extended stint in Doogie Howser. Exactly, she was Wanda. Yeah. I, and I, I had a big crush on her on Doogie Howser. I had a big crush on her in Dead at Twenty One. <laughs> and then uh, the agent on their on their tail, the guy the hunting evil them. Fed. Yeah, evil uh, question mark. Agent Winston. We'll talk about that, but Agent Winston, played by Whip. Hubley, uh, who was in Brady Bunch sequels, so that's fine. He was also uh, one of the many, many hunky pilots in Top Gun. Um, uh, yeah, so he, okay, so he and, is... And bro- brother to Season Hubley. I was going to oh. ask if, if he was part of all of that. Uh, yeah, he's, he's part, who... part of the, the Hubley dino- uh, Whip Hubley, you know uh, Season Hubley, she was in Vice Squad. The, oh, the wings, okay. The yeah, Wings yeah. Hauser, uh, Wings Hauser is a killer pimp I movie. I do know that movie. Yeah, where we sing, uh, Wings Hauser sing. See, see Vice Squad. Vice Squad is amazing. I heard, I heard a probably apocryphal story once that Martin Scorsese had declared that uh, the Academy Awards don't have the don't have the guts to nominate the best film of the year, Vice Squad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but I like to think that that's true. Yeah, but uh, uh, that, that sounds like the rock and roll equivalent of. Somebody asked Paul McCartney, hey, what's it like being the best songwriter of all time? And Paul McCartney says, I don't know, ask blank. Like, I've mm-hmm. always heard it as, I don't know, ask Neil Finn. Mm-hmm. Like, I doubt that happened. I would, I would, I would say ask Prince, but that's mm-hmm. me. Um, and, and Whip Hubley was in Species. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was it in, like, around the mid-90s? He was in Dead at 21, but he was in Species in 95. He was in Babylon 5. Oh, nice. my gosh. He was in the Coneheads movie. Yay. He played a pilot in the Coneheads movie. Good for him. Mm-hmm. He was in Black Scorpion 2. What? Oh, good. I've been, I've okay. been meaning to Black get around Scorpion. Black Scorpion. <laughs> Black Scorpion was uh, a really corny, Roger Corman-produced superhero movie that was riding on the very, very distant coattails of like Xena Warrior Princess mm. and that, that generation of television. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, really uh, low when he, production value. When you can't get the rights to Witchblade, you get Black Scorpion. I, I yeah. think Corman did have the rights to Witchblade. <laughs> uh, anyway, Dead at Twenty One. Oh um, so yeah, uh, yeah, live action MTV series, uh, and we talked about the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It's the most notable thing uh, you'll. It's the thing you'll notice first about Dead in Twenty One. It's mm-hmm. just the pervasive use of music. Yeah. Uh, this is. Uh, the way I would use music if I were cutting together a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on not the scene, but each emotional beat within the scene, yeah. the song would change. Yeah. So somebody sees something go past in a scene and they would start to panic and a panicky song would come on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's not about like... Uh, so many movies try to use music in order to basically set up a scene. Okay, so we're, here, we're introducing this new area. Here's a song that gives you kind of the vibe of it. This every you're right. Every emotional beat has a different song, and the songs don't have anything to do with each other stylistically. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're used really ironically. Like, um, for example, when the FBI agent or whatever secret agency he's working for that never we never find out in the show, uh, when he's driving around like being a badass, like killing people and looking for our heroes, what is his like? living outside the law song that he's listening to. What is defining his character? Gin and juice. Mm-hmm. Not your first pick, but you know what? It works. <laughs> it evokes a mood, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It shows what he thinks of himself right now, and it's pretty <laughs> fucking great, actually. But it gets very literal, too. Yeah. And we get that right from the jump, because we find um, 
basically our, our exposition dump of a character. When we first encounter him, he is in hiding in a very small space. And what song is playing? Man in a Box. Get it? He's in a See, box. He's in a box, you guys. Like that's the level. <laughs> I uh, I was I wasn't able to dig uh, up a I, lot. Uh, I love Man in a Box. It's a good song. I mean, that's it no was slight a little on overplayed at the time, but it was huge. I was able to look up. Uh, there was there's not a lot of scholarly data on Dead at Twenty One. Uh, largely because it aired that, that's for... That's why we're here. Well, it aired for it's one season. But it aired for one season and never really had reruns. It was basically gone. Never on video. Yeah, so I get that it's a relatively obscure. But uh, someone did put together an interview with the creator of the show, John Sherman. And he did have some interesting nuggets in here. And I'll whip out a few as the uh, episode goes on. But he did talk about how it was MTV. They did have the rights to all this music. And they were reverse engineering a lot of it. Mm, like, okay. here's here's how we can take these musical beats and we can get an episode out of it. So it wow. was, So sometimes it was indeed just trying to sell soundtracks, basically. Uh, and- Which makes some of the choices we get in later episodes really baffling. Like, mm. not to bring it back to Neil Finn, but I want to find out who, like in putting this show together was jockeying so hard for Crowded House because Mm -hmm. towards the end we get like three different Crowded House songs two of which weren't even from their album at the time so I'm not really sure every once in a while they throw in like a a surprisingly old song like there's a there's a sequence at a hospital where uh Jack Noseworthy is about to be put under sedation and what do they play? Comfortably Numb that's a great fucking song, well, but it was wasn't there, uh, it wasn't new in '94. It's quite old by like that a, point. A notable cover of "Comfortably Numb" going, making the rounds. I thought that it might be in there because when was um, the whole "Dark Side of the Moon" play it with the Wizard oh, of Oz that, phenomenon? Uh, that was also like yeah, like that the was the early '90s. 90s thing. That Although that's not out. on "Dark Side of the Moon" though, "Comfortably Numb." Um, Comfortably numb is is from the wall. Yeah, that's a different so a different thing. But, but, but regardless, Pink Floyd did have a resurgence. Pink so you're Floyd right. Was very hot, right? That's then. a good point. That's mm-hmm. a good point. I'm not saying it wasn't like a great choice or whatever. That just like they were mostly contemporary, and every once in a while, throwing it comfortably numb. They're like, yeah. oh, if, how classy. If, there's got to be somebody out there, like on on Spotify or one of the new music yeah. services, who has assembled the soundtrack. <laughs> I'd say you can assemble uh, a soundtrack to Dead at 21, but really just run down the top 100 songs, yeah. and they're probably all going to be on. I, mean, I don't want to do that now. I can probably do it from my CD collection over yeah. there. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, because you're a badass. Um, so the, the creation of Dead at 21, real fast, uh, it was kind of neat. Uh, John Sherman was an aspiring writer who had pitched some stuff to MTV. They weren't interested. They said, uh, he, he, we're looking for something that's like really hitting the young demographic. They're really, really hard. And so he went home. And he thought about other stuff that was cool. And apparently the one of the gags in Dead at 21 is that the microchip in Jack Noseworthy's brain allows him to use 100% of his brain. Which was... That's, that's an old I, myth. It's an old myth. Around, yeah. It's an old myth. But at the time it was in regular rotation. The idea that humans only use between like 3 to 10% of your brain. Apparently... He was watching the Albert Brooks movie Defending Your Life, which talks about how humans on Earth only use 3% of your brain, and in the afterlife you use like 80% of your brain. It's just so so much better to be dead. Uh, And so he took that and started reverse engineering it into a fugitive kind of thing, Uh, wrote up a pilot, pitched it to them, they liked it, and then he left to work on, was it? 
Beekman's World? Yay! <laughs> it was on one of those. An- another wonderfully 90s show. I am Team uh, Beekman's World. I no, it was Bill Nye the Science like... Guy. Oh. He works. He originally worked on Bill Nye the <laughs> Science Guy for like the first season. Don't build Bill Nye. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> Bill Nye is fine, but like he. It, Beekman's it's all about World, Mr. Wizard, man. Beekman's World is hipper. I'll give you that. I, that's on me for getting your hopes up. Uh, and then he had actually moved to work on Bill Nye. Dead at Twenty One started coming together. He moved back. He wasn't allowed to like run the show. They had a more experienced guy do that. And also, he got screwed out of his created by credit because he wasn't in the Writers Guild. No! And, oh, and apparently, according to the guy in, the, in an interview, uh, he said, MTV said, well, I mean, technically you talked about ideas with our head of development, so did you really create it? Oh. And the answer to that is, yes. yes! Oh, they ripped him off. That's how that works. You talk to people who work at the company and then they give you some ideas and then you incorporate them. So, That's what development is. Maybe, That's not uh, how that works at all. So, wow. Ma- ma- Angie, maybe you can answer this. Uh, what what was like the corporate culture like at MTV in the mid-90s? Yeah, I'm curious I, I know uh, I've heard interviews saying that it was really laid back at MTV. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like the magic era for MTV and this is maybe like the last era where MTV is truly firing on all cylinders. I would say like the last time that MTV is probably truly in the zeitgeist is the whole TRL, Teen yeah. Pop, that whole... Basically when Carson Daly joined. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you kind of have these waves. And I know um, the head of MTV at that time was... Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a woman at that time. I'm blanking on her name. But we were really in this period of experimentation. Hence, like, all of these different programmings that The state that, that was got. on we at the time. The that was a big deal. Um, you know, eventually that morphed into things like Syphil and Ollie and Tom Green. Mm-hmm. So we're... He was a butthead, Daria. So yeah. we're, we're in a the culture... Brothers grunt. The Brothers yeah. Grunt. So we're in a culture where it's a little ironic, and maybe the snake is eating its own tail a little bit here, in that MTV is positioning itself as like, yes, we're very progressive, and we're gonna... You know, we're going to tell these pro-LGBT storylines, like, very early, Mm -hmm. you know, think of Pedro on the real world. You know, we're going to tell these progressive stories, and we're going to lead these conversations and be provocative. But MTV is also leading these conversations from the catbird seat, where they're taking all of these ideas and kind of monetizing it and turning it into a very specific 90s aesthetic of air quotes rebellion. Yeah. So they're kind of taking the counterculture running it through a machine and then serving it back to us and going, yeah, this is alternative. Well, what's weird about it now, though, is if you watch something like Dead at 21, and Dead at 21 is a very cheap show, and mm-hmm. you can tell. I mean, they it's not like nothing, but like it doesn't have the budget of even like the cheapest episode of X-Files from season one. It's a lot of that. running around L.A. when they're trying to <laughs> say they're in New Mexico. Clearly yeah. a lot of run and gun, <laughs> a lot of coverage found on the fly. I it's, love the, uh, they stop at a small town in Texas, yeah. and it is like so clearly Melrose. Yeah. Like, we know what Melrose looks like. To I, be fair, most of those like traveling across the country fugitive shows did something similar. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they were mostly shot in LA or Canada or wherever the hell well, they, they were shot. They, they, they were, were shot in like it. small town. They were shot in like, you know, but it's a small town in California. Like Calabasas or something. Yeah. Like just outside of Los Angeles. Like there's there's a lot of episodes of this show that are shot in or around Griffith Park and you can tell. Mm. Um but um and what was I saying? It was cheap. It was, but no, cheap. but like, but like when you watch this show and you watch the way that it is shot and edited and the way that the soundtrack is used in a much more spirited way, it if this was on now, 
it would blow people's minds. It is so much more interestingly stylized than even some of the better shows that are on TV, mm. which are really good-looking, classy productions. But this, at least today, mm. feels kind of renegade. Well, well but my whole thing with that is like, yeah. is that being renegade or exactly. is that just being 90s? Well, and that, but there's the 90, there are things that we try to capture about old aesthetics and there are things that we can't seem to capture about old aesthetics. We don't necessarily have the knack for it. And I think when you see like how something like, I don't know, the Batman filters early David Fincher into a modern aesthetic, they're still making it really kind of stark and Denisville and Muthy. Hmm. Whereas something like I don't, I'm not seeing anyone doing the Dead at 21 aesthetic as corporately decided as that aesthetic was. Right. This is what kids like right now. It's still so far from the sanitized corporate product we're getting yeah. now. Even the good stuff. I've, uh, I'm thinking of something like Legion, uh, the, mm, the FX I didn't show. See that? Um, I heard that was good, but yeah, Le- Legion is. Like, it's edited really weird, and it takes place in, like, various levels of consciousness, and some characters are real and some characters aren't, and it was described as, like, super crazy. And I feel like there one of the last episodes of Dead at 21 takes mm-hmm. place in, like, this weird uh, multi-dimensional headspace, mm-hmm. and it feels really natural in Dead at 21. Uh, Dead at 21 employed what uh, came to be known as MTV editing, Yeah, uh, that is just really sort of lot of different kinds of film stocks, a lot of different film angles being filmed simultaneously and then editing them all together very quickly yeah. in a way that makes it look really deliberately kind of scattershot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there, like, it's, like, it's like the, the show has mm. a, a short attention span. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like there's just so much energy it can't contain itself within one camera. Yeah. And certain filmmakers tried to do that. Uh, speaking of 1994, uh, Natural Born Killers oh, yeah. is very much this way. That very is very much, much so, yeah. like... It's Oliver Stone, you know. Yeah, but he's, he's kind of faking music. it because he's not right. actually of that generation, yeah. but he's doing a pretty good job. And I would mm. argue, like, that artificiality even makes that movie that much better because mm. then you kind of have this heightened level. Yeah. And, mm. and yeah, like, the MTV editing was kind of the aesthetic for every show on MTV. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what resonates about Dead at 21 all these years later is... It's the rare instance where that frenetic editing actually serves the show. Yeah. Like, yeah, these people are going to be freaked out and panicking and running around. Like, they are on the run. They have been framed. No, and as a result, it's actually, weirdly enough, even though it's clearly, obviously, of its time, no one would ever pretend Mm -hmm. it's of any other time, it feels like it still works because it's just like, it's like a period piece. It's like, this is what was going on in the 90s. You remember back in the 90s when we found out all those babies had microchips in their brains? Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, it's like, it's like, so you watch it now and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's what happened back then. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about it episode by episode a little bit because there's only uh, 13 and the last one's a two-parter. And they're uh, super short. And they're super short. They're 22 minutes in and out. Uh, the first one is the pilot episode it's 22 minutes of a ton of exposition, and I am so Im- much. I am impressed by how well it moves because <laughs> they have to like we're introduced to Jack Noseworthy. He's growing up in a reasonably nice family, and he's having his 20th birthday party, and, and, and he has weird dreams. That's, very that's, weird a, dreams. that's a running uh, running yeah. thing with uh, and Ed, his, Ed Bellamy. And his dreams will do things like give him clues as to who might betray him later, or who's in danger right now, or something to that effect. Um, the, the dreams are never really well explained, like how they function or what they're. I, they kind of tie into like the last episode. Kind of gives you some idea mm-hmm. of how they work, 
And we'll talk about that when we get to that, because I think that's where all of it kind of would be explained. But initially, we have no fucking idea. Yeah. It's just, he's just psychic. Um, he meets a strange woman at his party. It feels like that's a plot point they're setting up, that she was, like, yeah. robbing the place, oh, maybe. Right. or like yeah. really explained. She, she, she doesn't know him. She doesn't go to his school. He, she wasn't invited. She's just there, and they have a brief flirtation before Adam Scott comes in, and Whip Hubley is chasing him, and and the plot begins, and now she's just stuck with him uh, because they're both on the run. But, like, it feels like they're setting up that, like, we were going to find out she was scamming him, or she's not who she says she was, or maybe she was working with Hub- with Whip Hubley at the beginning. I kept we never waiting, find out. I kept waiting for it to be revealed that she was also a sim. A sib. A sib, thank you. Sorry, uh, sib. I don't know. Like, yeah. Adam Scott said it really fast, and yeah. I mm-hmm. did not understand. Yeah, I... Uh, uh, Yep. This, uh, as far as I know, this is Adam Scott's debut. Is this his first, first thing on TV? Yeah. I think he'd done, like, a little thing in a movie or something, but, like, he, this is his first TV show. Yeah, not even that. He had done, like, plays, he had been, like, an extra in some videos. Like, this yeah. This was his first TV role. And it's kind of a meaty... He's only in one episode, but it's a meaty role. He gets to give the entire show's premise. Adam Scott, as we all know, as the uh, the crew member from The Defiant in Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, and, of course, uh, one of the guys who helped invent the Lament configuration at Hellraiser 4 Bloodlines. That's right. Yeah, that's what you know him from. Oh, Nothing no. else. I, and, you know, J-Lo's gay best friend and monster-in-law. So. Oh, oh, he was uh, he was uh, one of the cops in Tork. Mm. So that's that's also where you know I'm from. Oh, speaking of not, we watched Torque for the first time yeah, recently. Can, can we rep for Torque for a minute? <laughs> Thank you, because I've been I have been I have been a Torque stan, uh, stan since the day that ca- I saw that opening day, and I was like, this movie is fucking awesome. And why is no one talking about how fucking awesome Torque is? Torque Stan sounds like a character from Torque. Um, <laughs> Torque Stan sounds like a country in a season of 24. Torque Stan. <laughs> Damn it, we have to go to Torque Stan. Boat up on your motorcycles because there's a lot of riding. But oh my god, Torque. So Torque, like... 2004 ima- movie. Imagine, yeah. you know, we're coming off of Fast and the Furious. We're coming mm. off of Triple X. Like mm. everything's speed big extreme it's a lot like, of ripoff movies yeah, a lot of ripoff movies and this one went why not motorcycles and i would argue what really puts this movie over the top is adam scott's performance yeah he knows what movie he's in that and that is something one of the things i love about adam scott and i've come to be a very huge fan of him over the past couple of years thank you pandemic um <laughs> for me finally watching parks and rec all the way through but adam oh, was scott <laughs> Yeah, just no. Star Trek. Yeah. No, no, okay. it was not in Parks and Recreation. Okay, yeah. I, was, I thought it was just Hellraiser. <laughs> Hell, Hellraiser four, Star Trek ten. That's all. Yeah. That's you're you're thinking of high crimes, I think. Oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone hit the table as much as possible. It's going to be great for the sound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but in any case, Torque. Yes. But yeah, Torque. And I feel like Adam Scott always understands the assignment, and he understands mm-hmm. it in Torque, and he understands it in Dead at Twenty One. Yeah. Like your assignment in Dead at Twenty One is to show up. Run around, jump around a lot. Uh, I think he Wait. is an incredibly gifted physical performer. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also point people towards. You can find this on YouTube. It's called the greatest event in television history, and there is a scene within the Too Close for Comfort episode where he is trying to demonstrate that he does not know how to sit in a chair. <laughs> nice. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But 
Torque, real fast. Let's let's stand for Torque. Back to Torque. Torque. Torque was one of the several ripoffs of Fast and Furious that came out shortly afterwards, like Biker Boys. And Torque, Biker Boys, we make our own rule. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Torque stars. It's a pretty good cast, actually. It's guys. It's Jamie Presley is in that Jamie one. Jamie Presley, who barely speaks. I know. She's just she like, like the tough person. She gets to like be evil and hit people with their motorcycle, not by running into them, but by like wheeling it into them, like it's punching you. Uh. And uh, it's got Martin Henderson back when people thought he'd be a thing. And uh, Ice Cube is in it as well. And it's basically a bunch of bikers run afoul of other bikers. And Adam Scott plays like an FBI agent who's on their tail. But he's the cool new era of FBI agent who wears rock and roll t-shirts. Oh, he does not wear a rock and roll t-shirt. What does he wear? It's an Image Comics t-shirt. Oh, was it? Everyone else wears rock and roll t-shirts. You're right. I totally forgot. You're That's, right. That's how awesome. you know he's a renegade. Torque is absolutely completely um, over the top and fucking ridiculous. And at the time, people were on its ass for that. They were like, oh, Torque, no, no, no. It's not as good as the Fast and Furious movies. This one is over the top and ridiculous. And then Fast and Furious became Torque. And that's when it started <laughs> making a billion dollars. And no one has gone back in time and apologized right. to Torque for doing it first. Torque is one of the stupidest movies you will ever see, and you will have so much fun. It's so fucking good. I love it to pieces. So anyway, uh, Adam Scott plays another one of these babies uh, with a microchip in their brain, and he finds Jack Noseworthy, but he's like immediately shot and killed by Whip Hubley. Jack Noseworthy and this girl Maria are uh, framed for that murder, so they're on the run. They're fugitives from the law, and uh, they have to find out what the hell is going on, and... Wouldn't you know it, the only way to find out is a video cassette that they found on Adam Scott. <laughs> so they have to break into... What, it's not a Best Buy. Where it's it's a silo! Oh, wow. I screamed! It's, uh, so here, here's Adam Scott's t-shirt in Torque, and I can't... It's like... It, it's Saint, Saint and Witch Sub or and something? Oh, Sam and Fletch. Sam and Fletch. Sam and Twitch. Sam and Twitch. Sam and Twitch were the cops who were involved in almost every Spawn story. <laughs> they were like the Rosencrantz and Gildenstern in Spawn. So the cop is wearing a shirt of a cop? A cop wearing a shirt of cartoon a, a, cops, a, a yeah. cartoon cops from Spawn. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. So there's this but, whole sequence where they, like, break into, violently break into... A silo. Like, a... a, a it's like an abandoned silo, and the abandoned yeah. silo is It's like Circuit of, City. Yeah, it's like Circuit City or some and other, like, full, major electronics And, yeah, there's, like, a bank of TV screens. Yeah, so they puts, he puts the tape in, like, one VCR, and now it's playing on every television in the entire store, and America, and he's running from the bad guys while constantly looking at the TV screen to find out more exposition about what the hell is happening. Yeah, and, uh, and poor Adam Scott has to dump, like, oh. 15 minutes worth of exposition. Yeah, and I love that, and, like... And he, he edited it together. He edited it together. Oh, like multiple tanks. I was it's like, hilarious. how did he find the time? Bless him. Like, he's like, clearly, like, this is where the super smart brain comes in. Must be. Because later on, they say, and and Dan Beard was an honor student. I'm like, he obviously was part of the AV club. Because how? 100%. Uh, so basically, the gist is yeah, they decided to, as we probably heard in the clip, I'm not sure which clip I used, but uh, we'll find out when I edit this together. Bizarre. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, they put microchips in babies' brains that made them super smart. Kind of made him psychic. And the scientist who did this is a scientist named Heisenberg, which would be important later when people learned about Breaking Bad and only then learned about history. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, I don't know about that. Thank you. Uh, there's, that's, that's, oh, a, that's, that's a bit of a Heisenberg joke. If, I get if it. You know who the... no, it's a, I, I, I get it on principle. The... Uh, so, that, so now they're driving... I'm laughing at that they're, one. I'm sorry. Someone, someone did. <laughs> wow. Bless you for it. 
Uh, so they're driving across country, or, you know, L.A., but pretending, uh, and looking for this guy, Heisenberg, because he's the only one who might be able to remove the microchip from Jack Noseworthy's brain and save his life. And every episode, they run into a new person in trouble. Oftentimes, it's another person with a microchip in their head, but not exclusively. And this guy, played by Whip Hubley, is always on their tail. And so every episode is basically about that. Hmm. Uh, that's the pilot. The pilot is a lot of exposition, as they all are, but boy, is there a lot of style. I appreciate that in the second episode, it's called Brain Salad, they decide to cover the most obvious question, which is, why don't you just see a doctor and see if they can remove it from your brain? I did appreciate that they took care of that just right away. Right away, just we're going to establish that that's not a good idea. So they decide we're going to go to a doctor, they scan his head, they find out there's a microchip in it, a doctor's going to take it out, and it's not going very, very well because Winston ends up finding out and he's going to like interfere with the surgery. It's kind of fucked up. This is where I begin to get confused about Winston's motives because we have an episode like this and the following episode where Winston comes in, he creates chaos, he's killing people who Mm. are connected to Ed, and then we get a little further in and it gets a little murkier. Well, one thing we never specifically see, ever, is Winston, the character played by Whip Hubley, with his bosses. He's, Mm -hmm. He's taking orders from somebody, but we never actually see... Who they are? Who exactly is he working with, and what well, is they, specifically their agenda? Is it just a cover up, or is there more to it than that? The uh, the opening narration in the uh, of the show, like right? The, in the op- subsequent opening, episodes yeah, says that uh, the, it was a government project. Yeah, but, but that's, that's all they it says. It's just a government project. What's the vision? And what end? And yeah, and uh, and Whip Hubbley pulls out his FBI badge from time to time. Mm-hmm. So he's a Fed, mm-hmm. but or or someone or someone who can get a good Fed ID from the was, CIA or wherever he's working. Yeah, uh, this was after the debut of the X Files. The yes. X Files X Files debuted the year before this. Yeah, so it was already uh, so in the, the yeah, and and this whole uh, you know. Alien conspiracies and don't trust the the FBI. The government that, is that doing was, something to that us. That was a big yeah. part. Like ever since uh, Whitley Stryber wrote his book uh, yeah. Communion, like all of that alien stuff was like also part of this like paranoid nineties uh, conspiracy. So the idea that the Fed is into like something that you don't understand is mm. seemed in keeping with the time. I wasn't so concerned with what his bosses yeah. were up to that that they kept his alliances vague was. Mm-hmm. It feels like part yeah. of the show. Oh, it feels also like eventually we'll be able to do something to the character because when you have a character who's in every single episode, eventually the audience is going to form some sort of attachment to them, maybe to their villainy, mm-hmm. but some sort of attachment to them. And so you want to kind of keep your options open about how you're going to let that character evolve. It does seem like as the final couple episodes are coming in, Something has happened to Whip Hubley's character. Either something has just been revealed, or he has decided to change his life around, or something. And he might not be as cut and dry evil as we thought. Mm-hmm. So that might be part of it, but it's hard to say exactly. Um, I feel like Brain yeah. Salad is an episode where we get one of the few fleeting glimpses of Ed actually using his super intelligence. Oh yeah. Uh, my number one complaint about this show is that we are constantly told. That Ed is very smart, and yet we rarely see him doing anything that would require super intelligence. Well, it's hard to write super smart characters because it requires the writers to be super smart. But mm-hmm. here, it's actually a little bit laughable in retrospect, because this is the episode where he gets to explain uh, to Maria what the internet <laughs> is. 
because they're going to use the internet to find out. So it turns out, wait a minute, I got it. We're at a hospital. Hospitals have the internet. We can find out about every doctor in the world because they're going to be in the internet. But so what we're going to the internet. So then we have to like find a way to break into it and figure out what the code is. Fortunately, I had a dream. Boo boom. That was the password. Oh man, Heisenberg's a guy. And then that's the episode. Like it's it shows him being super smart for the era, but in retrospect, it's a little funny because <laughs> it's, it's something we take for granted so much today. Although it, it very much is in line with some of the people who are working on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, a name that jumped out at me in the credits is Manny Cotto. Mm-hmm. Um, as an avid watcher of Twenty Four, bringing yep. it back to Twenty Four, wrote he, a lot of Twenty Four. He wrote yeah. a lot of Twenty Four, and you mm-hmm. feel that influence here, that yeah. constant ticking clock, mm-hmm. that utilization of whatever technology we have. Technology yeah. is going to point the way for us. Yeah, a lot of paranoia and conspiracy mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, totally. Well, Manny Koto took over, uh, and to bring it back to Star Trek, uh, he took over Enterprise at one point. And in, in the third season of Enterprise, that's when they started doing like these bigger, longer... Arcs. Mm-hmm. Is that when it got yeah. better or when Stop it got worse? Stop snickering at me. No, is that when it got worse? No, seriously. Like yelling our interest. Yeah. Is that, that when it got better or when it got worse? That's that's when it notoriously got better. That's ah. when people said, "Oh, it's not boring anymore." Uh, they did this big nine eleven metaphor where this uh, alien species appeared out of the sky and destroyed the state of Florida. Like Florida's oh. gone in Star Trek. Now. Oh no! And uh, yeah, the tragedy. And. Uh, of the, all the, the states, show, they, they chose that one on purpose. You know that. <laughs> the show became about uh, trying to track down this mysterious species, and uh, it was called the Zindi, and the Zindi was actually five species, mm. and uh, yeah, it became all about this like entire season story about tracking down the Zindi. Uh, yeah, and it was the same sort of thing. It was it became much more aggressive a show after that. Uh, Scott Bakula's character became like really cruel and was now torturing people and they had army guys on board. Uh, they had all those babies in it with microchips in their brains. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was a Star Trek story. Like a dead had to Star have been. Trek story. There had to have been something with someone with a microchip in their brain. Oh, it's the uh, Borg. But yeah, the Borg, yeah, I guess put, so. put Borg stole babies and put microchips in their brains. So, yeah, uh, the, the second episode he does like display some kind of intelligence uh, Throughout the rest of the show, his superpowers only manifest as these kind of symbolic music video dreams. Right. And it's basically when the plot could use them. It's mm. much like more it will psychic. save us time. It will yeah. save us time if he if like he runs into in fact this is actually the next episode. Yep. The next episode's called Love Minus Zero. Uh, pretty good guest stars in this one. We got uh, early performance from Marley Shelton. Uh, from the Scream movies, mm-hmm. Grindhouse, bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, and Mark Metcalf, who uh, was in Animal House. He was the bad guy in the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, he plays a sheriff. Marley Shelton plays his daughter. And the daughter is someone that Jack Noseworthy has seen in his dreams and knows is significant in some way. And so he saves her from a couple of bullies and then she, he gets invited back to her house and it turns out her dad's a sheriff and she, he doesn't trust him. But he's actually not that bad a guy. And it turns out the reason why he was seeing her in his dreams is because she's also a SIB. I forget what... It's an acronym for something. It's an acronym for something. Like, special interest babies. Um, <laughs> special interest I, 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 You know, like I they're, they're special interests. I swear like in, in baby Adam Scott said it was like neuro something, and then yeah. they were like SIB. I'm like, that's not an yeah. anagram for what you just said. Like, super neuro infant babies. I, I thought babies. it was short for like... like n- n- Neuro enhanced simulation, like it was. Yeah. It was like some sort of like a, a portion of yeah, whatever the word was. Yeah, we pulled one tiny piece out of this big thing that they are. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that uh, there's a cameo in this episode from an actor named Lee Ehrenberg, mm. uh, who uh, 
was in another MTV show at the time, The Idiot Box, oh, uh, the right. Alex Winter comedy show. He was also in the movie Freaked. He played the guy who couldn't stop farting. Oh, uh, he, he's he's been around, Lee Aaron, but we're looking up. But while we're talking about like more cameos and detours and stuff, I do mm. want to point out a very notable credit for Mark Metcalf that ties mm. directly into MTV, and in that? that he's the asshole dad in Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. Oh my god! <laughs> he helped define MTV with he that music helped, video. He, is, he was the exact antithesis of everything MTV stood for. Yeah, they, they should have made him. Um, the Whippy Blue character, honestly. Maybe. maybe. Well, they wanted someone young and hip. Yeah. They wanted everyone to look young and cool. They're all kind of cute. But, uh, uh, yeah. What, what's the line in, in like, what are you going to do with your life? Yeah. I want to rock! Bam. The, uh... But, the, but, back to this episode real fast. <laughs> but the, I hello, think in this... Hello, episode, children. We're talking about music videos. I think How in this... In, in this episode, we actually have a couple of things. One, there's an interesting kind of moral quandary mm-hmm. where Jack Noseworthy is like, well... Marley Shelton is younger than me. She's not going to die within a year. Should I tell her and her father, or would it be better for me to try to solve the problem and not let them worry about it? And he doesn't necessarily make the right call because Whip Hubbley finds out. But um, the other thing is, I think this is where we start getting a hint that the dreams might be coming from the other sibs. Like his dreams about paranoid, uh, 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 paranoid fantasies or whatever in the first episode... Adam Scott was nearby, and I think he was picking up on what was going on in his brain, and then he was around where Marley Shelton was, and he started seeing her and what her fantasies are. So I think the dreams have something very specifically to do with all of these sibs being interconnected Mm -hmm. on like a neural network. Kind of this this mental GPS system. Which is something that will come back in more literally in the final episode, and I think there's no actual answer, but that's the closest thing I got, so it's logical. And that taps into another kind of 90s (laughs) subculture thing that was going on. I mean, we, you're kind of snickering about how they're talking about what the internet is, but the whole, mm-hmm. like, William Gibson, Neuromancer, hacker, you know, shadow run. Mm-hmm. Oh, which was crowd. also a direct influence on this. The writer did say so. Oh, I think Neuromancer in particular. Yeah, Neuro, there's nothing the Neuromancer did not touch. Uh, yeah. uh, Neuromancer influenced just every genre thing that came after it. But yeah, the... Uh, so this idea that the brains are connected through a neural net is uh, kind of this hip new notion in science fiction yeah. that you see running through a lot of stuff, a lot of the VR thrillers that were coming out at the time. Uh, the next episode of Dead at 21 is one of those ones where, like, you know like when characters in a show have something they're really supposed to be doing and there's a time limit, but fuck it, we're going to do this instead because right. it's the episode? This is called mm. Shock the Monkey. Well, uh, th- th- this is when I realized, oh wait, this is an episodic show. It is. Like, mm-hmm. It's only 22 minutes long, um, it's it's a weekly program, but it doesn't have that sort of propulsive, all-one-story soap opera structure. Yeah, there's, Frustratingly there's, so. Well, this one is yeah. interesting because it's kind of both. They track down where Heisenberg was supposed to be living, and they find out that he, he was buried nearby, but his grave doesn't have him in it, and that will be important mm-hmm. later. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they also meet along the way these animal rights activists, and I wish they'd been a little bit clearer about this, because I feel like you could have justified it by, like, Ed being like, uh, well, you know, I, I can't help but sympathize with things that have been experimented mm-hmm. on, and or I only have so much time left on this earth, and, like, I want to do something positive, and I can do this tonight, and, like, I feel like they could have justified why they're taking the, the time the better only, the only to reason, help out uh, with, like, saving animals from a from a testing facility, the, the, which I agree with, but, like, it's, you know, 
maybe not their top priority. Yeah, they make it a lot more mealy-mouthed in Ed's justification. Yeah. He just kind of goes, well, I do feel like in the time that I have, I should try to do some good in the world. And it's like, okay, but also the good that you're doing is saving all the other sibs. So, yeah. like, eyes on the prize, Ed. They, they don't I, sell it very I, well. I, I assumed he was going out, because he was, like, flirting with the head of, mm-hmm. of this animal rights activist. Uh another 90s trend was that sort of uh, like environmentalists and protesters and uh, you know this sort of like second wave of 1960s protest Mm -hmm. was a big part of 90s culture at the time a lot of movies would use it as a subplot like uh, Mm -hmm. that's why Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin got stuck in the biodome Mm -hmm. because their girlfriends were environmentalists yeah exactly another freaked thing back to (laughs) multiple freaked references uh, the uh, Megan Ward character. Megan Ward, another 90s thing. Okay, you can uh, stop now. Wasn't she on Star Trek? <laughs> Megan Ward was not on Star Trek as far as I know. I don't remember Megan Ward on Star Trek. Okay, she I was just in a, a lot of uh, notable 1990s feature films. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Another, not, not particularly noteworthy actor, but someone you'll probably recognize if you're watching stuff in the 90s at the time. Uh, the boyfriend of the animal rights activist who doesn't yes. trust Ed, but then eventually but they bond a little. But bit. they he was familiar to me. He he eventually helps him like get out of prison by like swapping like identification bands with him. Which yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, he's played by Sean Kanan. Sean Kanan, you may recall as the villainous Mike Barnes from the Karate Kid Part Three. Heck yeah! And I think I actually just heard he might be coming back for uh, Cobra Kai. Yes, he's, he's that's kind of cool. So like it just guy. the timing's kind of cool. We just happen to be talking. I'm about waiting that, for Hillary so. Swank to show up on that show. That's only a matter of time, dude. You know that's final season. You know they're trying. <laughs> they're trying no, they have asked so many times. I'll bet you anything. So, you wanna? I, you I'm can, just wondering when the funny... Oscars. I'm wondering when the funny monks come back. Uh, the next episode is called Gone Daddy Gone, and here we actually finally get some backstory of Maria. Oh, yeah, Mar- Maria is... She's the sidekick. It's it's yeah. frustrating how she, how little she's highlighted. I know she's not the one with the chip in her brain, but mm. you would think she would be a better compass for Ed, or mm. she would be driving a lot of the action. They've established a few times that when they need to do something kind of underhanded, like steal something, she's really good at it. Mm. And this is where we find out why. It turns out she was raised by her... Her father, who was a con man, like a professional con man, like for like that's all three, he did. Three card money type. Uh, of that, he's yeah. played by an actor named Tom Bauer. Um, you might he was in Die Hard and Nixon and a few other he, things. You, he's yeah. one of those characters. Like oh, I know him, like that guy. Him. Yeah, and so this is basically the obligatory The Sting episode, mm-hmm. where the characters in the show meet a con man. They get involved in a con, and it looks to the audience like everything is going horribly wrong. But it turns out it all went according to plan. Ha ha ha! Um, so, but, are, yeah. are all of this? Are all of these song titles? Are the titles? Are they song titles? Yes. yes. Uh, Every single one. Gone is a Daddy song Gone title. is Violent Femme song, right. mm-hmm. which again, Violent Femmes were very hot in '94 because a hits album yeah. had just come out. Okay. Uh, people were suddenly very aware of Violent Femmes. Let's see. We got Shock the Monkey. That was Peter Gabriel. Yeah, that was Brain uh, Salad. Brain Salad. Emerson Lake, Lake Palmer. Palmer. I'm not yeah. sure who Love Minus Zero is. I I think it's a punk song that was like the yeah. one that i didn't really know what it was uh and i they really should have like called the pilot episode instead of pilot like stone temple pilot oh, or something love minus zero is a bob dylan song oh there you go okay and then future episodes okay so like uh so that's kind of it for the con artist episode unless there's anything interesting kinda, you want to point I out think, it's kind of just I, I think her this, backstory is kind of cool and yeah that's, uh, but i think this really cuts to the heart of what annoys me about maria's character because mm-hmm. 
We've given her this tragic backstory. Her mother died when she was very young. She kind of got swept up by her father who led her into this con man life. And so that brings us back to square one, which is why was Maria in Ed's bedroom that day during I that party? I keep expecting a scene where she just says, I was going to steal something. Exactly. Or I was going to engage in a con because you're part of a rich family or some bullshit like that. And, you know? and I feel like in shows today, it would turn out she had a bigger purpose. Or she's secretly another Sib. Or she's dying of cancer, so she has an mm-hmm. equal ticking clock. But no, we just have no, no, girl no. in room because reasons. And we could make this... So much cleaner if, let's say, Maria was Ed's Mm ex-girlfriend. And she crashes the party to, like, I don't know, give him his stuff back. Then they have a reason to bicker. Yeah. Like, it it would explain the tension. Yeah. Because I'm kind of like, okay, there's this will-they-won't-they theme going throughout the show, I guess, because every show has to have that in this era. But That's just almost any serialized thing. But I'm also like, there's no reason they shouldn't. No, in fact, they actually come really close in an upcoming episode. Um, mm. The next episode is, uh, here's Guns N' Roses. It's called Use Your Illusion. That's actually the name of an album, not a song, though. They, they, they get but, a little fudgy on some of these. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is actually one where, uh, this is actually a plot point that would eventually be used very closely in an episode of Supernatural, uh, where it turns out that Ed and Maria are the subjects of a comic book that is currently being published. This is also a plot that would kind of be used in the show Heroes. And it turns out another one of the Sibs has... So been like keyed into what they've been doing that he's been predicting what they're going to do in a comic book, and his latest issue is going to immediately precede him being killed and him being killed while trying to assassinate a politician. So stakes are getting like really raised in this one. Like it feels like kind of like small and on the outskirts of town or whatever like that. And this is like no 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 no. There's going to be like a live political assassination on TV in this episode, which is pretty intense. The uh, the comic book artist is played by a Star Trek. Uh, no, I actually, I actually <laughs> but, knew I'll, that. I'll, I'll say this. Yeah, the '90s. It was a good time to be Star Trek uh-huh. in the 1990s. So a lot of yeah. those actors showed up on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And His name all, is Alexander it, it Enberg. Was, he was, was yeah, in. Yeah. Um, he was. Well, he was up playing Vulcan in uh, Lower Decks. Okay. Um, the episode of Next Generation Lower Decks, not the new show. I, and I will say, like with all this talk of Star Trek, I feel like this might be the most 1994 episode of the entire series because. Mm. This episode reminded me of The Crow in ways that are very hard for me to quantify, which puts me in a weird position while I'm talking about it. But I think there was just, there was an aesthetic. There's like all these candles everywhere. We have the tortured artist and we have um, this comic artist giving this performance that is just unhinged. Yeah, he is not, he is not. Uh, holding back at all, he's he, going for the Emmy. It's I, all happening, man. Like <laughs> maybe the the because the crow it, the crow was based on a comic book, and yeah. you know the, the sort of like wave of an underground like zines and comics with an X were also like kind of hip at the time. Yeah. So uh, maybe that like that's the connection that could sort of like the, the odor of the comic book shop where you'd be picking up the crow. Right. The, the other thing though, the Dead at Twenty One comic. Book. The other thing though that like it kind of connects Dead at Twenty One and the Crow, and it's a little bit more oblique, but um, they're both about death, mm-hmm. and they're both about young death. You know, the crow was original. The original story of the crow was uh, about a young couple, and they're murdered when they're very, very young. The lives are all ahead of them, and he—it's so brutal and so horrible that the guy comes back to get revenge for the life they didn't have together. Dead at twenty-one is about someone who's going to die when he's twenty-one. Mm-hmm. They're both kind of fatalistic in their tone and their themes, 
And I think that's kind of something that I, in the more thoughtful moments of this show, which is kind of weird to think about considering how energized it is, but he, this is a guy who's going to die, mm. and he knows it. Like, it's yeah, well, kind of sad. And the, the next episode is all about him kind of rejecting that and trying to do, like, an episode of Baywatch. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's not... That's just general teen fanatophilia. You know, uh, kids get into the sort of death thing. They kind of romanticize death. No, I was just reading and an article, like, yeah. a few years ago about how, like, with all of the unfortunate stuff going on in the world, the climate change mm. and authoritarian politics and everything, like, a lot of young people just can't imagine living to 80 anymore, you know? Mm. Like, it doesn't seem likely. Well, and, and I think, uh... That, that was a big Hopefully part Hopefully that's of... not true, by the way. I don't want to play into anyone's, well, like... that, that I, was... I don't want to think I'm more than halfway there, so... Yeah. There, there was, you know, that was a big ethos. We talk about this a lot, the sort of, uh... Uh, nuclear fear of a nuclear annihilation that oh, was yeah. really big in the 1980s. That was yeah. uh, you know kind of the, the like Reagan the, era. The world could end any day. Yeah. You know? uh, with the the 90s, that there was yeah the sort of general lack of hope that there is no direction for life anymore. That everything does yeah. have kind of a everyone in charge is corrupt. Yeah, and, the, and conspiratorial. The, the, the systems and, yeah. can't be trusted anymore. And additionally, there's nothing to really unite the people. We're just sort of at each other's throats a lot. So. Every generation has their version of that, and I think that is something that makes this incredibly of its time show feel a little bit more universal. Mm. That Jack Noseworthy, when he gets a little bit thoughtful and kind of gets a chance to look inward, he's just turned 20, and he doesn't know what to do with his life, and he's a little bit aimless, but now it's not going to happen anymore for him. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. It gets a little... little Vaguely profound. Yeah, that's a good point because I think a lot of these shows are focused in paranoia, especially if you look at something like The X Files. Yeah. And it took many, many, many seasons for that show to peel back the layers of humanity for their characters. And that's for better or for worse. But that that is telling that this show that's more marketed towards children, not children. Children, oh, but young adults. Very young people, Young adults, yeah. you know, the people who are watching this show are probably going to be about Ed's age. I was, I was 12 when I was watching this show, but uh, I was still, I, I still totally felt it, man, you know, I totally got it. Mm-hmm. That you, was totally you, the right way. You, you yeah. caught the vibe, but yeah, yeah, I think that that really does tap into something that we were all a little fatalistic and pessimistic, but, you know, you get through that with attitude and gumption and, like, life finds a way. Well, and, and dismissal. Like, the the systems are not to be trusted, so we're just gonna, like, hang out, man. Yeah. Why bother doing anything? And, of course, Gen X got a really bad reputation for being mm-hmm. slackers as a result mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, millennials, you know how much shit you took from boomers? Just imagine they also called you stupid. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, exact same group being pissed at us, by the way. Yeah. Gen- boomers, they, have been they, in, boomers have been in charge for so fucking long, they've been mad at Gen X, Gen Y, yep. and now they're getting mad at Gen Z. So <laughs> maybe we got a problem. Uh, the next episode of Dead at 21 is called Live for Today. I do not recognize that song. I know. Sounds very Broadway. Yeah, I was thinking that. Well, that's Rent. That was later. But that Um, is later, yeah. I don't know Live for Today. That was not ringing a bell. Rent wasn't until 96. Um, Live for Today, MTV 1994. I feel like I looked it up and now I forget what it was. Yeah, this one's not ringing a bell. Let's Live for Today song, 1967. I don't think that's right. It was originally uh, by the English band The Rokes, which I do not know. I don't think that's right. That doesn't sound like the right. 
thing. Uh, there's got to be like a. a f- it's, it's from like it's from a, some a famous cover. Or we're, something. we're gonna find out. There's a letters to Cleo song called the, Live for so, Today. Some like 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 the Crash Test Dummies had a B side called Live okay. for Today. Uh, along with the Rokes, the Living Daylights, and the Grassroots, the song has been recorded. Uh, I'm reading straight off Wikipedia here, uh, including Tempest, the Lords of the New Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sickly Boys, The DBs, and Dreamhouse. Okay, so it's plausible. So it's been covered a lot. If anyone knows that this is based on something else, if you think, like, no, wait, that's totally, like, a Spin Doctors song that we're not thinking of. It's not a Spin Doctors no, song. No, I was just picking a name out of a hat. <laughs> I if would you know. know if, so would I, actually. <laughs> All right. But, uh... <laughs> we're like, a rep for the Spin Doctors. I, I like the Spin Doctors. Chris Barron follows me on Twitter, and I don't know why. <laughs> So Chris, if well, you're I, listening, thank you for the follow. I, I guess if if you wanted to talk with him for hours, yeah, I could just go ahead. Just, now. just go ahead now. What time is it? Uh, excuse me, I gotta go. I have a box full of crypts tonight. Uh, anyway, live for today uh, is basically they get bored and go to the beach. They decide that they need like some time I, I, off, and they I go like to this the... episode. Really? Because I hated this episode. Uh, because the, what I like, I, and I've, I've said this before, I like episodes where they hang out and just talk. Yeah, but the, here's my problem with this episode. I'm fine with them hanging out and just talking. This is also the episode where they deal with some of their sexual tension and they get drunk and they almost fuck. But like they, they sort of make out. Yeah, they definitely make out, but they don't actually go through with it. And of course, in the morning, they're both kind of awkward about it and it kind of ruins it and extends the romantic chemistry for another season. Uh, but in this one, they go to the beach and they meet a bunch of not very bright young people who, like, like him right off the bat. And there's, like, Jack Noseworthy is, like, kind of into this one chick on the beach, but she's got a boyfriend. And there's this hilarious bit where he's talking, like, I don't know what she sees in him. He doesn't even surf! Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is, like, my favorite line of the whole show. By the way, I'm 99% sure, like, that actress's swimsuit, I'm pretty sure I had the exact same swimsuit. <laughs> nice. With, like, the little daisies going around yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the cleavage. The, the, the crocheted, uh, the, um... Uh, oh yeah This episode uh, Her name Her name is Terry Ivins She was in some of the Trancers movies mm. So you know But awesome. uh, this episode Does have what I think Is one of the funniest things That happens in the whole series Where uh, Ed gets drunk On the beach mm-hmm. He's got a couple of beers in him And he's a little more Loose lipped than normal And yeah, so he starts Talking about like Yeah in. there's a chip in my head I'm gonna die when I'm 21 And like Everybody else is drunk And they're just like Ha 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 You're wasted Go home Yeah It's cute um, I kind of wish like weird things happened to him. So I wish the chip was more of a regular issue. Like mm-hmm. every time he gets drunk, like the chip kind of sparks Ooh. or something like that. And it's just like uh, like it gets him like got, way too wasted. Or he starts like, like hallucinating or something. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. something like that it could be kind of fun. Like be, and also it would make him like kind of frustrated. Like I'm young and I'm gonna die and I don't even get to drink. And it would be like kind of this weird way where MTV was being like kind of responsible because he's not 21 yet. Ooh, fair point. Uh, yeah. But uh, the next episode and this one, oh, it, I, I did want I'm to sorry. point out one more thing in this episode which drove me batty like I get that we're trying to save money Uh but we make up a beach town yeah why did we make up a beach town? Just go to like go to Malibu. Go yeah. to Malibu. Go to Santa Cruz. Go to Pismo Beach. Like we've got a lot of those here. I don't know. Maybe they thought it would be cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next episode is called "Tie Your Mother Down," which I think is a Queen's Rock song. A, it's a Queen song. Oh, tie your mother down. Uh, in this episode, the bad guys tie Ed's mother down. Mm, yeah. See they, what uh, see what they did there. They kidnap his mom in order to get him to come yeah. out of hiding. Just like the music cues. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we we all skipped, obvious. We skipped over the one that made me want to like throw things at the television, which was when um, in uh, in the third episode when they do uncover Heisenberg's alleged grave. Turns yeah, out yeah. not to be. But they go to the desert and they're digging in the dirt to find this grave. 
And what song comes on but Digging, Digging in, in the, the Dirt, dirt by Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. Nicely done. Nicely done. Were they already using uh, uh, Peter yeah. Gabriel that episode for Shot the Monkey? Well, Shot the Monkey, yeah. If you're 16... Uh-huh. And you're editing a scene. That's something you'd think to do. Right. Of course you would. So there, there is a, a, almost a, a charming homemade quality. It's authenticity. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so in this episode, it also turns out that uh, Ed's mom's boyfriend, who we met in the first episode, uh, is an asshole and sold him out uh, for the prize money. I don't think he was part of it. Was he part of the conspiracy all along, no. or was he just greedy? I think he was just greedy, because there was like yeah. a $50,000 reward. Yeah. So, yeah, it turns out he's an asshole. Ed has to save his mom. Maria helps him save his mom. They save his mom. There's a bit more action in this episode. Yeah, there's like some this car is like stunts an actual stuff. thriller, proper thriller episode. Yeah. Uh, also, there's that one actor who's in this movie. Uh, his name is Sean Whalen. Yes. He was in yeah. a lot of stuff in the 90s. Uh, almost everyone who was alive in the 90s knows him best as the Aaron Burr guy. From the oh yeah, from the uh, uh, milk commercial. Uh, the, the milk industry decided in the '90s that people weren't drinking enough milk, or that milk wasn't hip enough. Oh, that, and they no, spent, that, that started like that was in the '70s. Yeah, no, was, but that, like in the, the, the okay. whole the whole milk it does a body good thing. Milk it does a body yeah. good was always basically about how healthy it was. Mm. In the '90s, they tried to make it hip and cool, and they had a bunch of really funny uh, commercials uh, and. Uh, the, the absolute zenith of that entire wave of milk commercials was a guy's listening to a radio, this guy, Sean Whalen, character actor, look him up, you've probably seen him in something. You um, recognize his face immediately. Yeah. Oh, definitely. He, and he, he looks like James Gunn. The he does a little James bit. Gunn. Yeah, he looks a little bit like him. And uh, so he's eating a very thick and creamy peanut butter sandwich, like very mm. thick peanut butter sandwich, and he's listening to the radio. And he's like, okay, your $50,000 question who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? And he suddenly like looks up and he looks around because he's in an Alexander Hamilton museum. And it's a picture of... is next to him. It's like literally the bullet is right there. There's a picture of Aaron Burr shooting Alexander Hamilton. And they call him up. And he picks it up and he says, Aaron Burr! Like, I'm sorry, what was that? Aaron Burr! Because he's got too much peanut butter in his mouth. Hold on, let me get some milk! And he doesn't have enough milk to wash down the peanut butter, and he loses $50,000, which is why you should never eat peanut butter. <laughs> it's actually not a pro-milk commercial. It's an anti-peanut butter commercial. Uh, I will not abide by this, con- this, uh, this propaganda. This effort by yeah. Big Calcium. To- <laughs> but I, there's, like, seriously an entire generation of people who only know who shot Alexander Hamilton, not because, because of the musical, but because of that commercial. I think that commercial was directed by somebody who went on to be a big damn deal. I want to say it was, it was Michael fi- Bay. It was, I would Michael, not be Bay. It was yeah. Michael Bay. Yeah. Michael Bay did that commercial. Michael Bay did a lot of big commercials. He did that famous commercial about uh, the woman, the invisible woman wearing jeans. And they mm. was set to whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And like she seduced people. But it was okay because even though there was nudity on camera, they were invisible. Mm. But it was oh, actually kind of like... I don't remember that one. It was kind of like a big deal because there was like a lot of CGI in a commercial. Yeah, like right. good CGI for like the first time. Yeah, my, uh, so. th- that, that was a Michael Bay ad. Yeah. Uh, that milk ad. Um, we're talking about the milk ad more than we're talking about the episode. Well, because no, that's not a much... It's, it's, it's just action, basically. Yeah. It just reminds me that Ed's mom is still in play, you know? And, and I feel like this is... Again, like Ed's kind of frustratingly opaque powers because mm. he goes to 
try to save his mom because he has a dream that his mom is in danger. That's right. But, That's how it ends. Yeah. So they, they risk blowing their cover and they try to go home and, oh no, mom's been kidnapped. But luckily yeah. boyfriend is there and it turns out to be a double cross. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of interactions in the show where it doesn't take a lot of convincing for people. Yeah. Um, this definitely happens in the episode with uh, Twisted Sister Guy, because he's basically like, you guys killed this honor student, and I'm going to turn you in. And, and well, it's basically like, no, we didn't. And he's like, well, and I that, believe you. And that one actually is actually a little better than most, because that's a guy who actually adopted one of the babies with the microchip in his head, and he's able to point out, you adopted her, and she had a scar in the back of her head. And he's like, how did you know that? So at the very least... He's got some reason to think it. But, for example, in the Baywatch episode, which we just talked about, there's a whole bunch of people who, like, see this, like... And it's actually a recurring gag. They did, like, an America's Most Wanted recreation that they keep showing. Oh, oh I love that. It's actually kind of funny. It's like <laughs> America's Unsolved Murders. Yeah. No, it has, like, a really... It's, a, it's like America's... Mo- Top ten most armed, armed and dangerous criminals that are still on the land. Like it had a really long time. It's clearly a gag, but um, in any case, it's a bunch of like all these like surfer dudes. They've known him for like him and Maria for like one day, and then they see on the news that they're wanted for murder. And instead of just turning them in, some of them are like let's catch them for ourselves. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's a stupid thing to do, but. Uh, also, a lot of them are just like, no, we met them once and we liked them. Mm-hmm. So we're going to aid and abet fugitives from the law who are wanted for murder on the right. drop of a hat. It, it makes perfect sense when you look at Jack Noseworthy. No. Oh, yeah, he's, look he's at a, Jack Noseworthy. He's a, he's a charming, is he? handsome young man. He's okay. Who is clearly coming at them with a, a little bit of gentility and understanding. Uh-huh. And, that's ju- and that's enough. That's all I need. I, I'm convinced. Okay, that's it. Why, why? How? Why is it that if you in any given episode of Doctor Who, somebody decides to sacrifice themselves for Doctor Who, like hours after meeting him? Well, that actually doesn't happen most of the time. It happens Doctor. a they, lot. They die. They don't necessarily die to save Doctor. Like, Who. like there's a crisis in Doctor. I know. Who. By so, the way, his no, name we, is we, in we, Doctor Who. <laughs> his name is Jack Who. Also, and her then, name sometimes. Don't forget. Uh, their name is Jack Who. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, no, but yeah. But the problem comes I'm, up. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm okay with this idea that people will uh, fall to the side of good when they meet Jack Noseworthy and listen to his plight. I know. Just sometimes it makes a little more sense than others. For example, the next episode. Would, would you turn him in? Yes. My next episode. <laughs> you you soulless bastard. Maybe he not. Maybe fifty grand. Okay? Maybe not Lisa Dean Ryan, but I would definitely turn in Jack Noseworthy. All right. <laughs> oh, I see. What she's got? She's she's more convincing as an actor. Uh huh. Anyway, the next episode is called Cry Baby Cry. I don't recognize that song It's a Beatles song. Is yeah. that it? Oh, it is! Okay, I, was, I wasn't looking that far back. I, got, I, I assumed it was a 90s. Why aren't they all 90s songs? I would assume they were 90s songs, so I assumed it was like something like more recent that I was forgetting, but you're right. Um, this is a very stupid episode, but this is one where they have a baby in the car. Oh. They the, go to the car, there's a baby in it. Well, this yeah. is the very special episode about domestic violence. Mm. Oh, that's also true. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're in a motel, and it turns out someone who was uh, wanting, who was had a baby and didn't want to raise it, saw them together, thought they seemed like a nice couple, and just gave them the baby. And now they're trying to help this baby. And they, of course, Jack Nosery says a whole bunch of like really sexist shit about how Maria is a woman, and she's gonna mm. immediately the maternal instinct is gonna kick in, which to the show's credit does not happen. Yeah, which I appreciate. Too many, uh, too many shows and yeah. movies have this yeah. idea that uh, e- e- no matter who you are, if 
you identify as female, you're going to be a great mom as soon as you have a baby, even if you don't want one. Well, this is something that you'll see in a lot of movies and TV shows. The idea that uh, the family unit is Mm. such a powerful institution in the United States that just posing as a family unit. Yeah. uh, You have a baby just sort of thrust upon you, all of a sudden you will skew into domestic bliss. Yeah, you won't just be three uh, guys was, and a baby. Yeah. By the end, you will be three men and a baby. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of, uh, there was a movie called We're the Millers, which yeah. was about uh, these four uh, like criminals. They're all a lamb, for one reason or well, another. Well, they're, they're, they uh, all agree to smuggle drugs over the border by imposing as a suburban family. Yeah, and and, and they're in just, so doing, yeah. they kind of become a suburban family. The movie's actually they're, kind of funny. There's also, a, a, what was the name of the Catherine Heigl movie that and Josh Dumal was in it? Oh, Life as We Know It. Life as We Know It. That was that There was a subplot like that in the movie, uh, I Don't Know How She Does It, which is... Uh, Stars Sarah Jessica Parker as a mom uh, who is very wealthy, has a high-paying job. Her husband has a high-paying job. They have a brownstone in New York and a nanny. Mm-hmm. I think I figured out how she does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's like a subplot in that movie where like one of her like employees is like a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. She only likes business. She cares about her career and she doesn't want to start a family. But then she ends up pregnant and having the baby. And as soon as she has the baby, he's like, oh, I get it now. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> like, seriously, fuck you. I know so many people, that's not the case. Like, that's there's so many bad parents out there. You're selling this really irresponsible lie. But anyway. But that does not happen in this episode. No, thankfully, no. Although there is, they, they go to a motel. They're staying with the baby. They're, they're immediately found out because this is something that they clearly put in there so that because it's a 22-minute show. Mm-hmm. They do not have the real estate to fuck around. It's very punchy, these storylines. And I appreciate that, actually. It reminds me just how much fat there is on most hour-long shows. They, go, they check into the motel. They got the baby. They're trying to figure out what to do with the baby. And then the people who run the motel see that America's most mm-hmm. unsolved murder friends <laughs> episode. And then they're like, oh, it's them. And they kidnapped a baby. Holy shit. Oh, speaking about unsolved murder friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Quibi's Murder House Flip is coming back. Of all the shows, not a lot of shows we do on Cancel Too Soon get an extra season. It's happened a couple of times lately. The Devil is a Part-Timer got a new season after like 10 years. Oh my god. Nobody saw that coming. Good show, but like nobody saw that coming. And Murder House Flip, which sucked. Not only was it a very tasteless uh, reality series about a bunch of assholes walking into (laughs) the sites of horrific murders Mm. and saying unbelievably disrespectful things, but they also, to a one, ruined all those houses. Like all those, there's, there's is, like, is this a reality show? It's a reality show where they go to a reality show on Quibi where they would go to homes that were the sites of notorious murders, like serial killers and, lived and people, there, or like tragic were, Hollywood deaths, and, and people like, yeah. were already living there, and yeah. their houses needed to be improved. So they yeah. they said we're going to get the murder out of the house, and they yeah. would wow. and they would spruce up and the they house would always there. talk about like how like oh but what if we find dead bodies in the backyard? They never fucking did. It was always bullshit. which was a disappointment. Yeah, really set it up. But like they would go. I, I want to be. This is Walter moment. Right? Yeah. They hold the bone. They did this one thing like in this house with like a very tiny front yard, and they put a swing set in the front yard. And I'm like, the swing set is two feet away from a metal fence with spikes on the top. Who's gonna swing there? That's a terrible thing. Or there was another house where there was this glorious marble uh, 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 fireplace. Like, gigantic, original marble. Oh, my God. First thing they did was break it. 
And I'm like, that's the most expensive thing in the house. That's like the only thing of interest in the house. And you ruined it. You turned it into a shitty living room that anyone can have. I hated that show. Okay. <laughs> so mad. They're just they're bad at their job. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm startled that you're angry at a Quibi show. Quibi died. You don't have to be mad anymore. Okay, wait a minute. You want your... your Argument right now is that we need to stop talking about Quibi. You are saying this. This is coming from Whitney. Cats and dogs living together. Whitney Master. has a Quibi t-shirt that he still wears on the reg. Okay? I, although the, the problem with the Quibi t-shirt is just a big letter Q. And I don't want to be... Not as, people I don't get wanna, it. Oh, I don't, don't, don't want to oh, wear around like... In public too much because I don't want to be mistaken for like a QAnon you're, guy. You're, you know what? You are right. That is that does suck. I mean, it's that's the, not fair. It's the Quibi Q, which is distinct, but, but not enough people Q. know but it. It's still a bit just not a, a, a yeah, T-shirt with a big Q. Q. No, that's things. I actually didn't put that together. We love you, you giant fucking Q. Anyway, but, the baby episode ends with them get finding a, ha- a family for the baby. Like the lady wants a baby back, and she's like, "Ah, oh, I feel bad about the baby." And then it turns out her boyfriend or husband well, they, was abusive, they, and they stopped that shit. Well, this is also another episode where we have that moment of, you, you murdered that guy, I'm going to turn you in. And they're like, no, we didn't. And, like, the people in the hospital are like, I believe you. Like, except for the guy uh-huh. who's like, oh, shit, I already called the cops. Yeah. But, of course, the cops don't show up, right? It's, it's, yeah. It's uh, Whip Hubley. Of course, it's up. always Whip Hubley. Um, oh, by the way, the guy who ca- who turns them in, did anyone recognize him? He looked real familiar. Bodie Elfman. There it is. Uh-huh. Married, uh, married to Jenna Elfman. Um, I think he's... Is he cousins or like the nephew of he, Danny Elfman? He's Richard's uh, son. Yeah, so he's been Danny Elfman's nephew, Richard's Elf, Richard Elfman's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's been, he's been in a little bit of everything. He was in Sneakers. He was an enemy of the state. He was in West Craven's New Nightmare. A uh, lot of small roles and a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the next episode uh, is called Life During Wartime, which is a talking head song. Yes, that one is. I know. Uh, this is the episode where they meet a guy who has a conspiracy theory TV show, and they're the one conspiracy that's real. And it's it's not Razor and Blade from the movie Hackers. Uh, sadly, so. no. I was super confused when this guy first showed up, because I thought it was Dave Holmes for half a second. He and looks like, like a lot of other people. Yeah. yeah, he played Ted Bundy in the movie Ted Bundy. He was in Mars Attacks, Vice. His, name, his actor's name is Michael Riley Burke. He's been in a lot of everything. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's like, oh, you, you guys are this conspiracy, and like we could bring out this conspiracy. I don't even remember those episode ends. Um, so essentially what happens is they see this TV show, they go to talk to this guy because he's talking about them, because now it's the whole thing. This is where we come back to, hey, remember how like a politician got assassinated oh, yeah, on live that? TV? We, remember when that kinda, happened? We kind of dropped that. Like They were at the scene. Like, yeah. At this point, they're and, wanted for murder, kidnapping a baby, assassinating a politician. They, they may have fucked. committed some light treason. But, yeah. like, so he's focusing on, like, who are these other people? And so Ed and Maria show up and meet with this guy. And they're like, no, actually, we're innocent. And, again, we have that five seconds of, like, oh, really? Oh, okay, I believe you. Yeah. Um, and we have a little bit of tension between the host and Maria. I think Maria is kind of given a legitimate out. For once in this series, where yeah. he's like, "You could come with me. Like, yeah. you don't have to run. You didn't do anything." And she's like, "I'm gonna stay because reasons." Um, but 
Because oh. Jack knows where he's just so hot. I, I mean, just, just, I mean, I mean. <laughs> how, how could you not? 2022, he's no Adam Scott, but gonna, I mean, we're for gonna, 94. We're going to use the noseworthy scale. Is this actor noseworthy? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, then he's as hot as Jack Noseworthy. Is, is that like being sponge-worthy? Yes. If you're, are you noseworthy? Does that mean Jack Noseworthy is the top of the Noseworthy? I, in 1994, like the listen, I didn't think so, but you've got me convinced that he was he's, the sexiest he's the, he's thing the alive. Control. Is he the control? Yeah. <laughs> he's he's a, okay. Let's move but on. anyway, so what ends up happening is what always happens is that you know evil agent gets wind of what's going on, and suddenly there's a shit ton of people coming to crash this TV studio yeah. right as. They are doing like this hijack the airwaves live oh, yeah. broadcast, which was Tell hilarious. Like the scene of Ed and Maria like calling the media to mm. be like, "No, really, you need to watch like this dinky show that like tens of people are watching because yeah. we're about to drop some truth bombs on you." And they manage to escape because the TV host has like a secret tunnel out of his studio behind like a painting on the wall. I for the Avatar: The Last Airbender fans in the audience and no one in this room is going to get it i just have to do this secret tunnel secret tunnel there was a secret tunnel song in that show i see you should all watch the new season of only murders in the building a lot of secret tunnels there secret tunnel so anyway they escape through the secret tunnel uh, okay I'm, i'll just be over here mm. oh do you not relate does this have nothing to do with star trek Look, uh, there's a there's, star trek there, episode there are so many jeffrey's tubes in star trek <laughs> Instead of calling it a secret tunnel, we just call it a Jeffrey's tube. Jeffrey's tube. Like he's going to be totally on board. Uh, can I mention Paul Dillon, the, cre- sure. like the creepy guy who's like yeah. posing as the, uh, was it the uh, funeral home director? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Like, there's like a secret funeral home there's director. There's a secret funeral like, home like, director and there's this like creepy guy with like scary, starey eyes that welcomes them in. That's an actor named Paul Dillon. Uh, you might. He was the Irish guy in Austin Powers. Uh, he was in uh, Cutthroat Island, and he was in Soldier. Like he, he plays a lot of like kind of creepy scumbag kind of characters. Well, this is also another time. Speaking of the funeral home, this is also another time where the show and Ed confronts Ed's mortality head on because mm. they have to sneak into this funeral home. They know that like there's suspicious things afoot, and so they have to pretend like they're shopping for coffins. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's... And, he, and he says, "Yes, it, it's for me." Uh, are, are, oh, are you going to die? No, I just want to plan ahead, but he's going to die. Or is he? He has to find Heisenberg, I guess. Yeah, or he'll be dead at 21. Or he'll be visiting a polygamist cult. That's the next episode. The next episode is actually one of my favorite episodes. This one goes wild. But it's also like sort of a clip show with which broke my skull. Because <laughs> we're only 10 we're episodes episode in. We're 10! This is episode 11. Uh, yeah, no, there's, no, there's it's a, ten. It's ten, and then eleven and twelve are, are double are together. Yeah. yeah, no, this is ten. Um, this episode is called. Uh, no, wait, this last episode was ten. Eleventh okay. episode is Hotel California. That's okay, the that's the one. Uh, and that's this a song by uh, Green Sticks. Jello. Okay, Sticks. Yeah, that's my Sticks. Well, how many times can we do this joke? We only have a couple episodes left. <laughs> uh, the the gag in this one it's by is screaming trees. Whatever you got. Ed has found out that there is a Sib who has managed to live longer than twenty one, which is true. Actually, he's thirty five. He's thirty five, and he's figured out a way to survive. And Ed's trying to track him down to sort of learn his secrets. He tracks him down, and it turns out he's the leader of a polygamist cult, very Mansony, mm-hmm. which is really weird and creepy. He's played by an actor I really like named Richard Tyson. 
Uh, Richard Tyson who, who's co-starred like, uh, that dude from Showgirls. Um, the, oh, the the singer, the singer, like the long hair oh, yeah. singer. Well, guy. I feel like we had a lot of that guy in this era. Like he was a specific lane of sexy. That, yeah, it's like, just kind I, of this like I never really subscribed sexy. to. But yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff though. He was like the main bad guy in Kindergarten Cop. Uh, he was in Black Hawk Down, uh, and he I think his very first film role. Uh, was as a character. What's his character's name? Hang on. Uh, his character was uh, Buddy Ravel in Three O'clock High. Oh, I which love is that movie. One of my very favorite. I honestly think it's one of the best teen comedies ever made. Um, it stars uh, Casey Zamasco, who was um, one of Biff's underlings in the Back to the Future, uh, as a teen who goes to. He's just this little nerdy wisp of a guy. And he goes to school, and there's a new guy at school, and all these horrible legends are about about him. He killed a guy with his bare hands, and he accidentally challenges him to a fight at 3 o'clock, and he spends the entire day trying to find a way to get kicked out of school, and it's really funny. It's a, and it's shot like a Sam Raimi movie, too. Like, it's completely wild. I love that flick. And I actually met Richard Tyson once. I was, um... <laughs> Did you ask him about Dead 21? Uh, no, I didn't know. I didn't know he was on the show at the uh. time. I, but I, I was actually, like, of all things, I almost never go to bars. But I was with some friends at a bar, and Richard Tyson was there. Nice. And he was just a nice guy. I recognized him from 3 o'clock high. Super cool. And we talked a little bit. He had just, like, started working on, like, a pilot with Roddy McDowell, where they were going to be, like, helicopter pilots or something. Can you do that on this show? I think I've been looking for that one. I'm trying to remember what it's called. But, uh, in any case, reasonably cool dude. Uh, and, yeah, he plays this, like, really meaty hunk of a man who's got multiple wives, and they're all named after elements, like, yeah. air, and air fire, and water, and fire. And they're like, what happened to Earth? Earth died. Red flag! <laughs> It turns out he t- and, uh, he takes Ed to like uh, Mar- to yeah. Maria's credit. She figures out what's going on quicker than Ed does. So much quicker. And uh, Ed is completely Ed, like Ed, Ooh, Ed multiple on, lives. Ed goes Neat. into like the sweat lodge spirit journey, mm-hmm. which is su- supposed to be insightful, but it's another one of those like dream sequences where we have to kind of. But s- this is where we get the parse out. Of the, yeah, yeah. It's basically just him talking about his past. But the twist is actually a pretty cool twist, which is the reason why Richard Tyson has been able to live long enough is because he's been tricking other sibs into taking drugs that incapacitate them, like, you know, the sweat lodge Ed you're in right now, and then eating their brains. They find skulls that have been sliced open and (laughs) scooped out. He's been eating brains. That's a test the crypt episode, yeah. But that's fucking dark for this show. Like, that's really cool. Like, I liked this episode because it it didn't go where I thought it would. Like, it was much, much darker than I thought. And this is a reminder that Dead at 21 aired pretty late in the day on MTV. Because I think it came on at 10, and it led into, as we learned from so many of the bumpers, the state. Oh, my God. So you're watching Dead at 21, and like, okay, so we just narrowly avoided this guy who eats human brains, and we're going to keep driving, and if we don't find the Heisenberg soon, we're going to be dead at 21. And then they like play the cranberries or something like that and the credits roll for two seconds and then you'll hear just some really chipper 20 something yell it sounded like Kennedy I, I think it, it, was but, it, was, yeah. it was probably Kennedy but yeah. it was something but she said something to the effect of ready to stick your butt in some pudding <laughs> the state's coming up next on MTV and it's like clearly yeah. clearly improvised like uh, coming up next Beavis isn't feeling so fresh up next yeah. is Beavis and Butt it's like and, and I guarantee you I watched 
end to end whatever they were showing. Yeah. I would literally watch MTV. It was the TV was just on the entire weekend. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. And this is this is the summer as well. People were like at home. You weren't going to school the next day, even if you were kind of young. Yeah, you, you could, could like stay, stay up, up and watch this shit. Yeah, Oof. It, the rebellious days. Uh, the last uh, episode is a, a two parter. <laughs> to say it is a good show. Last episode is a two parter. It's called "In Through the Outdoor." Anyone know? That's a Led Zeppelin album. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Um, in this episode, they find Heisenberg. It's kind of a big fucking deal. Well, they kind of find. Well, they him. they think they find Heisenberg. I was gonna get there, but you're just you're so spoilers. clever. And, you're so right. clever. And Heisenberg. Um, you think it's going to be like a celebrity get, or yeah, like someone or, cool, or, yeah. or maybe, or maybe like a musician, someone cool on MTV, like they got Iggy Pop or something like that. I'd be kind of neat. Iggy Pop would have done. Peter Rollins would have done it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an actor named William Morgan Shepard who was on Star Trek. He was in the sch- he was the schizoid man. He uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah he took over Data's body in an episode of Next Generation. Look, if you're if you were an actor in the nineties, you probably did Star Trek this more is than true. once. It's like the Law and Order. Okay. Yeah. It was a Klingon Star Trek. <laughs> Ironically, so was Law and Order, but yeah, true. Anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, he's, it was a hoop through uh, through which every actor. He's this old British line. guy, and they managed to save cool, cool voice. Cool voice. He's, he manages to save Ed and Maria. From Whip Hubley, but right after Whip Hubley says something to the effect of, I'm actually not trying to kill you, mm-hmm. I'm trying to save you. <laughs> Car crash, mm-hmm. Whip Hubley gets shot, and then they kidnap them all and they take them back into Heisenberg's house. Mm-hmm. Heisenberg has got two other sibs with him, and he says, Okay, so. Here, Let here. me explain everything. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes no sense. Not a lot. I no. mean, there's, there's... it makes sense in a very, again, a very specific 90s cyberpunk way. Yeah. yeah. The uh, What has happened is he's created, what was the term they used in the last Star Wars movie? Uh, oh, a uh, force dyad. Dyad. Yeah. The force dyad. dyad. Well, this would be a triad, he created though. He yeah. created force triads yeah. with these chips. And the idea is if you get three sibs together... They can synthesize their cyber minds to like peel back an electric dimension. It, it's a yeah. literal neural network. Yeah. yeah, which is honestly kind of my jam. I gotta be honest here. <laughs> we got microchips in our brains. You put three of us together. We can psychically link, which again kind of explains where the dreams come from. And we can, by psychically linking, we can experience reality so differently. We could theoretically live out millions of years. Get super intelligent, super philosophical, achieve higher states of consciousness within seconds. Mm. Which, admittedly, sounds like an interesting thing to put in a show. And they link up, but only after realizing that Heisenberg isn't the real Heisenberg. Mm -hmm. He's actually a bad guy who's trying to manipulate the Sibs into doing what he wants for his own bad guy purposes. But did we figure out what that was? No, that's a cliffhanger. He's he's a bad guy. He's not Heisenberg. Uh, they, they managed they, to they, sit- they leave everything off. Oh, yeah. oh, so, huge, so frustrating. It's a huge cliffhanger. So the big cliffhanger is uh, Whip Hubley is saved from being killed by Maria, uh, and it looks like he's probably going to join them, if not forever, then at the very least, enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. Which is baffling to me because, like, mere yeah. seconds before they open fire on that car, Winston is going so it. Why do you think Maria's been hanging out, like trying yeah, um, to plant a seed? Like he's manipulating to get them. To later. Yeah, something to later. Yeah, manipulating till the last second. So yeah, there you go. He's like Linus on Lost. Um, so um, he is off 
somewhere, possibly going to save the day. Maria is about to be executed, and of course we do the thing where we see the gun go off, but we don't see her get shot, so she's probably fine, but we'll never know. because It never looks like episode. she's dead. Look, as it far looks as we know, she's dead. Look, as no body, know, no death. That, that's true. Yeah. It's probably fine, but in any case, and meanwhile, Ed and these two other sibs, uh, one of whom is an actor who is in a bunch of stuff... Uh, his name <laughs> That's is. Everybody. We're stopping uh, on every supporting yeah. actor. They're it's actors like every character mm-hmm. actor. But oh, what's whatever. interesting is like yeah. I feel like we've joked about Star Trek, but it's not like these people all necessarily crossed through the same stuff. Like, True. Mm-hmm. True. Uh, but in any case, yeah, they do end up joining their consciousnesses and going into. Video toaster cyberspace, which looks oh, gloriously lo-fi. Oh my Look, god! Okay, um, I, I know you're not a big fan. In fact, nobody is. Uh, I, I, I've defended it, but even I'm not a very big fan. You're going to talk about Lawnmower Man. No, I'm going to talk about Generation X. Oh, the, the, uh, oh, the, the X, the 1996 X-Men spinoff oh, TV show that they tried. Yeah. It was a, uh, that was a pilot episode. Pilot, we covered it yeah. a few years ago and canceled too soon. Yeah, mm-hmm. where they Generation X was basically the 1990s version of the New Mutants. They introduced some new characters, mm-hmm. Banshee and. Emma Frost for the teachers. Characters weren't technically Generation X, but whatever. Yeah, whatever. But uh, it was was a good name. It had X in the title. Yeah, Generation X. And they made a... a, They just... Prior to making X-Men into a movie, they decided to make Generation X into a TV show. And a big part of that is uh, Matt Frewer doing his best Jim Carrey impersonation uh, has found a way to... To, like, link up... uh, the dreams of mutants, and yeah. that—that's like the big plot of the movie. And there's all these, yeah. and he did yeah, it same through like virtual of, reality, like so, subliminal messaging. To yeah, it, yeah, he would like plant subliminal messages in virtual fire video games. Oh, and, so nineties. <laughs> it's so nineties, you guys. This, this finale really is the nineties of nine. It's like yeah. every sci-fi conceit that was yeah. hot in that moment, just in a Voltron of. Yeah. So the so the main <laughs> gag is um, oh by the way the actor I was thinking of is David Kriegel he was uh, one of the guys who was like on the bus in mm-hmm. Speed so you okay. saw him in every scene but he didn't have a big role um, they go into cyberspace and they find the actual Heisenberg and his daughter dun 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 and that's all we get <laughs> the show is over and will never be continued again oh don't forget that everyone in the triad collapses and might have died oh yeah. Cool. And that's what we got. And that's, and that, the, yeah, end that's the, the end show. of the show. Bye. That is the end of the show. Um, dead, and dead you know what? Fourteen episodes. And you know what? I like this show. I do too. <laughs> I like this show. It's very nineties, but it, it works. I, I admit it's a not just lot retro; of, it just works. Well, I, I admit a lot of the appeal for me was the retro element. It was very yeah. nostalgic. Uh, the, the use of music, the pervasive use of music, uh, it was just sort of. Hitting me left and right with all of these nostalgia bombs. Uh, there, there's a scene in the very first episode where Adam Scott is driving, and and because he's a little bit crazy, he's like driving a little bit wild. And they're playing Primus on the soundtrack from the album Pork Soda, and that was one of my favorite <laughs> records. Uh, so uh, yeah, a lot a lot of the appeal of the show is from is from the area from which it came. Yeah, uh, it's um, that that made it fun to watch. It made me. It made it really difficult for me to suss out the difference between what I was responding to nostalgically and what was actually genuine drama. And I think there was fits of genuine drama throughout. Look, it's an. I feel like I got really distracted. Well, yeah. A lot of the one-off episodes sort of forgot the thrust of where these characters were going. And this has always been the problem with shows like The Fugitive or Mm -hmm. The Incredible Hulk, where people are on the run and constantly getting distracted by subplots. 
Yeah, I think that I think The Fugitive actually, ironically, even though it was a huge hit show, worked better as a movie mm. because Richard Kimball wasn't constantly getting distracted by, oh no, someone sold this kid's brother drugs. <laughs> like, no, we can he can stay focused for two hours. We can do that. We can just have one little side thing in a hospital that makes sense. Oh wow, we forgot to mention the literal nod to the fugitive where Ed ends up like jumping into a reservoir. Oh yeah, he like literally jumps into like a <laughs> reservoir. Like and, and honestly, I'm surprised they let him do that given the budget on this Why? show like i was like that, that's where all the budget went yeah they just like put it right there and Forgot they put it in the, that, the yeah. lawnmower man triad at the end yeah so um but yeah so like that but that's episodic tv tends to do that unless you have a really good excuse for episodic tv where mm-hmm. the characters aren't on a continual journey like the the gig is their job they're lawyers yeah, yeah. there's a new case this week they're cops there's a new case this week or, they're doctors or, or, there's a new if, case this week or if they're not looking for heisenberg they just need to stay on, on the sure. road. They just need to hide yep. out in motels. And there's a lot of dialogue to the effect of, I don't like staying in motels. We're eating badly. We're yeah. not sleeping well. Which I actually like. Yeah. We see them like sleeping like out in the middle of a field. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which is like, yeah, they're on the run. You don't want to like, you want to see as few people as possible. Mm-hmm. And they actually address that better than a lot of other fugitive shows. Mm-hmm. Where you get the sense that this is not fun. They, they keep having problems with their car. Yeah. Like at one point their car gets impounded. Yeah. And, and that's that's unthinkable think, when you're 20. You know, yeah. you're, you're still in college at that point. Your life is still very structured. The yeah. idea of what are we going to do today just keep moving is yeah. you know, and they don't and they weirdly, like it's horrifying and weirdly romantic at the same time well they also don't have money like the last two episodes take place in LA and there's a whole bit about how yeah we got to LA and LA is so expensive we literally had to stop and get jobs yeah which is like <laughs> yeah actually yeah that's that's about right um, but yeah, I'm with you. Like it's because of the structure of it, because it's got a ticking clock. You only have one year to solve all your problems before you die. Time feels like it's of the essence, and every digression is a little distracting. But I think over the course of like eleven episodes, one being a two-parter, most of them felt like they were more or less on point. Like there was a reason to do it this week. Mm-hmm. The baby one, no. <laughs> the beach <laughs> one. No. But most of them, it's like, we run into another Sib, or, oh, there's another conspiracy here, or we're trying to get the chip out of my brain in a new way, and, like, it actually did kind of track. So while not every episode is a winner, overall, I think it does work dramatically. I think the style is incredibly retro, and I admit I'm totally nostalgic for it, but I would be surprised if you showed someone who'd never seen this show today, someone who's younger and wasn't around in the era... I think if you show them the show today, I think if you gave them a couple episodes, they would actually get into it and think this is a really neat aesthetic. Well, it's there's it's nothing a, quite like it right now. Well, there kind of is though, and this is bringing us full circle. You know, we've we've got Adam Scott here in the first episode, and he's playing a guy with a chip in his head. And I would argue that the closest parallel to Dead at Twenty One right now is Severance, because well, we I would have, say that, so I can't well, say it. we have Adam Scott who plays a guy with a chip in his head, and there's some sort of nefarious conspiracy behind it right and it's very possible that these chips can kill you so dead 21 is just really exploring a trope that continues to fascinate us to this day right true but you're talking about content what i'm talking about is style fair and i think the style of this show is incredibly specific someone says a very specific style too fair but is it dead at 21 style no okay something i feel like dead at 21 really does feel like we we had a 
song that was guaranteed at a hit, but we had no money for the music video. So we just went out and shot some weird footage, and all of a sudden we've got the music video for like Cannonball by the Breeders or something like that. <laughs> where you just had like we're gonna have like, a couple interesting shots, but it's gonna be like largely what we were able to find. And I think that kind of lo-fi but high energy and we're really going to make it work in the editing room aesthetic really works for this and I think it's actually an incredibly exciting way to tell a story and I prefer that to a lot of the we're just going to make it look nice aesthetic we got now you know Uh, or sterility has really become a standard for imposing sci-fi and honestly like I'm getting a little bored with it which is natural styles come and go uh you were talking at the the head of the episode about how this sort of MTV aesthetic was very corporate approved. This was what uh, this is what the kids are going to like. So we're just going to sort of force that on a lot of people. Uh, and the curious thing about Dead at Twenty One is it does have that sort of m- mid nineties MTV corporate approval sheen underneath it. But at the same time, it feels really homemade and low budget, and like people are just sort of slapping to this together as they go. And I really like that element of it that it felt like. It was stumbling over itself to do something really exciting, yeah. Rather than uh, something that f- was like safe and structured, and uh, it, it was the less polished aspects yeah. of the show that I really appreciated. Sam, it, it wasn't afraid to laugh at itself when you think yeah. of like mm. America's worst murder killers or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like you can take their plight seriously, but the show itself is made with a sense of humor, mm. and I think that's great. Honestly, yeah. like, I, I seriously, you can definitely see this being part of a very fun programming blog at the time. So I guess, unless anyone has anything else they want to uh, throw in there, the question is, was Dead at 21 canceled too soon? And I want to start with Angie. Um, yes, Dead at 21 was canceled too soon. We are left on a horrendous cliffhanger. We have so many questions that I came to the end of this show wanting the answers for. Yeah, I was, was really, really invested, yeah. was really frustrated that we didn't get, and it keyed into such a specific aesthetic and mood and style so soon. I feel like it takes a lot of modern shows multiple seasons to kind of hit their stride stylistically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, find their voice. Yeah. And the fact that the style feeds into the voice and vice versa, like, it's a surprisingly well-assembled show for... MTV throwing like one of 80 darts at the wall and hoping something sticks. Which apparently was a big part of it. Like they were just basically like, oh, let's just try it, you know? And yet somehow it came out kind of cohesive. Whitney? Mm. Uh, Yes, I think it was canceled too soon. Yeah. Uh, It's of its time. It would have continued to follow the trends of the time. Sure. So uh, it came out in 1994. Uh, MTV in 1994 different hits than 1995. The soundtrack would have changed. Mm-hmm. The vibe would have changed. That would have been uh, kind of cool, though, I think. Yeah, to watch know? it sort of See, evolve a little bit. Every season of MTV oh, is every year so of MTV. So much live and Dave Matthews Ooh. band. <laughs> oh, then, looking forward then, to the episode Lightning Crashes, where, like, <laughs> Ed gets hit by lightning and it fries his chip. Oh, there is hallucinations. <laughs> lightning crashes and, and, and this Bellamy is, cries. And this is another show that's chasing a lot of trends. It's doing a lot of stories that were big at the time. So how long before, you know, what, what does this look like in 1997? Uh, yeah. when, when are they going to go to the hip hop club? When yeah. uh, they go to Lilith Fair? When do they go to Lilith Fair? <laughs> I want to know who the first like when big does Sarah McLaughlin guest star? That's, a, that's what I want to know. Who was the first big musician, or at least big at the mm-hmm. time musician, to actually appear on the show and I, like want to play a villain or something like that? Because mm-hmm. you know it's probably Flea. 
Flea or Henry Rollins? Flea yeah. or Henry Rollins, probably who they're going to get because yeah, they they were already they, they wouldn't be, wouldn't have gotten like a, a hip band at the time. They would no, they wouldn't. Like, REM wouldn't have done it, but they would have gotten. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like who had like. Well, the guy yeah. from Crash Test Dummies. Dexter Holland. It's gonna be something yeah. recognizable. Yeah. They'd get like, like Billy Joe Armstrong or something. Like, hey, they go up well, to like, him and they'd be Michael, like, "Hey, have you seen this boy?" Mm-hmm. When, when was when was Michael Stipe on Pete and Pete? Uh, Ninety one. Oh, so yeah. it's a little earlier. Little earlier. Uh, I'm gonna say as much as I love REM, you do not want Michael Stipe acting on your show. He's not. It's not his wheelhouse. He's not an actor. He's very smart. That's fine. He gave a bad performance on The Simpsons. He gave a, a voice performance. They, they literally so. Yeah, I give a bad voice performance on American Dad. Anyone can do it. <laughs> you you know, give a fine great. performance. No, on I really did. I'm not. No, no, don't let no. don't let the depression say that. <laughs> I, I, no, that's just me being a critic. But okay. But but fun fact: um, when Ariam was on The Simpsons, they actually had to coach Michael Stipe on how to talk like Homer Simpson because there there's and, and you know like Homer Simpson like he sees a donut he's like mm, donuts. They they had a bit where they they nod to Michael Stipe being a vegetarian and he has to go mm, curds and like first couple of takes he wasn't getting that he's just like mm, curds and they're like no it's, it's like that episode of The Simpsons now remember you like curds got it mm. hello Mr. Thompson yeah. <laughs> uh, but to answer the question officially on my end I also agree that it was canceled too soon I really like this show and what I, I when I was at school. I took a class in American TV history. And a lot of the stuff that we watched, we watched a few of like the really famous things. We watched like an early episode of The Honeymooners and like mm. some of the big stuff. But a lot of it wasn't about the big stuff. A lot of it was about showing the stylistic evolution of television. It wasn't about like the stuff that was like get the huge hits. It was the stuff that sort of represented the era. So mm. like in the 80s, the two shows that we watched were Pee Wee's Playhouse and The Equalizer. Whoa, okay. you know? okay. So like that was the vibe. I would teach this show in a class about American TV in the 90s. If you're Just covering that... In terms of eight, uh, yeah. theme-style editing, that kind of thing. If, if you had to narrow it down to like two or three shows, I would definitely include this show. Because this is everything people were talking about in terms of like trying to hit the young demographic, but actually doing it rather well. Mm. So like... When The Simpsons did Poochie as like the 90s dog who ruins the show because you're trying to be hip and now, uh, this is the way to do that correctly. Yeah. Which is, it's actually affecting, the style works for it, I think it's reasonably well written, it actually ties into uh, a lot of contemporary meaningful themes for the generation that's supposed to be the target demo. The two two leads, I think, take this show a long way into making it feel kind of authentic. If they don't have good chemistry, the show does not work. Well, they not only do they have good chemistry, but they have that dejected feeling. They don't feel like posers. Yeah. And, and, it doesn't kids, feel like kids, they're... Kids can spot phonies. It doesn't smart. It doesn't feel like they're wearing someone else's clothes. There yeah. you go. Yeah. And what, you know another thing a little, I liked about this, uh, this show, and it's a little thing, um, they're on the run, they're pretty much carrying like a backpack each, they do not have a new wardrobe every single day. In fact, you see Maria in particular like trying to take her clothes and do interesting things with yeah. them every day. Like, like tie them in knots. Yeah, like... just, just so that it looks a little different, but she clearly still has the same wardrobe because we cannot afford to go clothes shopping or, or risk getting caught shoplifting too often. I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah. that is my, one of my favorite things that can happen in entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> like the realization that people have clothes and they're going to wear them more than once. Yeah, there's a... It, 
you've seen Mallrats, obviously. Shannon Doherty had a clause in her contract that she could keep all of her wardrobe, nice. but it takes place over one day. So <laughs> she she engineered it so that in every scene she's clothes shopping and trying on different clothes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Honestly, good for her. That's, I, they totally do it, too. I, I love that when uh, an actor gets to keep a costume or a prop or something as their pay. Yeah. It, it That's make, part of it, anyway. It always makes me wonder money, what, what they do with, like, whenever an actor plays somebody who is having their portrait painted, there's oh, a yeah. portrait of the actor. What happens to those portraits? Do the yeah. actors get to keep I out? hope they do. Alison Pregler, like, trapped down, like, a portrait of, like, Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap that just found its way into, uh. like, a junk shop someday. And mm. she, like, did, she tried to track down the providence of it and everything, wow. and that was kind of cool. Wow. So, I, yeah, they, they do happen, but I, of, I often wonder that as well. And I've often thought, like, if I could have any painting from a movie, I want the painting of the guy from Manos, The Hands of Fate. <laughs> the one that looks like a Frank Frazetta of Frank Zappa. Mm. Like, yeah, I want I, that one. I want the one of uh, James Stewart next to Harvey. Oh, that's a good one. I love that. Yeah, you have any particular like movie paintings Ooh, you would like? The Kramer jumped to mind, but I think oh yeah, the, I think the one I would want is uh, Kevin's painting from This Is Us because they use this painting to explain like the entire premise of This Is Us. Okay. So it works on many levels. I've actually never seen <laughs> This Is Us, but I saw the I saw the pilot for Pitch, and I hear it's the exact same thing. Uh, in some respects, yeah. Same, same it's just creator, just add right? and or take away baseball, and you've got it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's it for Cancel Too Soon. Hey, thank you everybody for listening to Cancel Too Soon, and thank you Angie Seibold for joining yeah. us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I have a very long. particular set of skills, so I'm glad you let me talk about like three really random things that I know about. <laughs> well, you've endured so many shows just by like you don't watch everything that we do, but you've seen enough, and you know that it's not all easy. So it just it means a lot to us that you <laughs> that you haven't divorced Whitney. <laughs> Early on, we did Hot Springs Hotel. She watched some I of watched, Man. We're, we're I watched still, most of yeah, that. Yeah. It's kind of hypnotic, isn't it? Like it's not good, but it's hypnotic. There's something about like sleazy bad TV yeah. that is more hypnotic than it should be. Like late night Cinemax so in the e- 90s. Really is just easy a to very watch. Different vibe. But then you've also done shows like Pitch and All Missed Human. These are shows that I watched and I rooted for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm gonna rep for Adam Scott one more time on this program because I have been yelling at Whitney not yelling but just do ghosted because yeah we thought we, we almost did that for for uh, suddenly last season a couple years ago I think I think we had it on a poll and it lost yeah. but uh, like, we, we'll get to it someday it, yeah. it takes such a turn like it's just such a fascinating cool. study of what not to do by the way speaking of which suddenly last season is going to come back this year we uh, kind of got thrown into disarray with the pandemic and a bunch of other stuff happening but uh, we're going to bring back that event if you're new to the show uh, that's when we look at uh, TV shows that were very recently canceled after one season or less. Like, only in the last season did mm. they uh, uh, get canned. So uh, that'll be coming up soon. But before we get into that, we're going to have one more episode that's just for funsies. Mm. And uh, in this one, uh, you might have heard of a guy named Brian Bosworth. Does anyone here know who Brian Bosworth is? You mean the star of Cinematic Triumph, Stone Cold? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, I do mean that. Also known as the the Boz. The Boz. Nobody nobody calls him the Boz. No, everybody calls him the Boz. Yeah. He he is uh, he was he was a star in the National th- Football League. Th- th- think of a big beefy guy smirking. <laughs> that you thought it, you just thought of Brian Bosworth. <laughs> With looks, a mullet. Looks like Howie Long's like tougher brother. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I only know Howie Long because of the movie Firestorm. But in any case, <laughs> Brian Bosworth. He's a big guy. He's a big guy with a big head. Brian Bosworth played an action hero and a failed pilot 
in the 1990s, co-starring the guy from the Speed movies whose car always gets blown up. Brian Bosworth plays a guy whose name is Lawless, and the show is called Lawless, because he's Lawless. And we're going to do that, because it's fun. Not to be confused with that movie where, like, mm, who is it as a cowboy? It's, like, Alan Lerner no, and Shia no, LaBeouf. It was, uh... No, no, it's Tom Hardy. It was Tom... Well, it might have also said Shia LaBeouf. No, it's uh, Tom Hardy and... Was it Giovanni Ribisi in that? No, it was Tom Hardy and Paul Dano. What yeah, Paul Dano? Uh, Lawless the... I, I thought it, it was, was a, Shia LaBeouf. It was, it, was a, it was a prohibition movie. It was a bootlegging film. Yes. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was Shia LaBeouf yeah. and Tom Hardy. And, and Tom Hardy. And, and, um, was it Killian um, Murphy who played the bad guy in that one? Like, everyone was in this and, fucking and, movie yeah, and Jessica nobody Chastain cared. Jessica Chastain was in it and Mia Vajikovska was in it. I don't know. The, the entire oh, cast was. of every Christopher Nolan like, movie. Yeah, it's, no, it's really well. Okay, it's Tom oh, Hardy, Shia Guy, LaBeouf, Guy, Guy Pierce, Jason Clark, Jessica Chastain. Gary Oldman are in this movie. Jessica Chastain, Mia Vajikovska, and Dane DeHaan. Ooh, wow. Nice. Like that that for a movie that is not Oh, and Noah Taylor is in this. This as is well. like past, present, and future of, of yeah. Hollywood. Yeah, everyone is in this fucking movie. It's not a very good movie. It's no. not terrible, but it's not a very good movie. It's fine. But like the cast is like, holy shit. So anyway, we're we're not doing the movie. Not that. We're doing the we're doing the TV show Lawless. It's called Lawless. And then after that we're gonna do Suddenly Last Season. And then after that Halloween's coming and we get to do horror shows for a while and I like them because it's fun <laughs> and then we're going to go back to doing more stuff but anyway that's it for Cancel Too Soon hey Angie where can people find you online um, well I do have a Twitter um, I have a really boring Twitter handle I think I'm literally Angie-Seibold nice. um, it's mostly retweets I'll try to retweet some Chris Barron stuff just so you guys like pick up on his vibe <laughs> just to see if Chris Barron notices mm-hmm. listens to the episode um, that's awesome thank you so much and seriously thank you so much for joining us been great. Thanks for having me. This yeah. has been fun. Uh, we we here at Cancel Too Soon can be reached in a variety of ways. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, uh, or anything at all, really, do you remember watching Dead at 21 when it was on the air? Uh, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net We also have a P.O. box. You know, like they used to do uh, uh, correspondence in the 90s where Ed Bellamy invented the internet. Uh, Whitney, (laughs) what is our P.O. box? (laughs) Send it to Ed Bellamy, uh, P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. If you want to hear more exclusive stuff from us, you can head on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have exclusive shows about hey star trek yeah believe it or not we're reviewing every single episode of star trek in order uh we've got episodes about uh we got shows about every single film that we're nominated for best picture we've got an upcoming podcast about every single installment in the in the step up franchise including the tv series we've got commentary tracks we've got discord hangouts we've got trivia nights there's a whole bunch of stuff over there thank you to all of our patrons for keeping this show going we couldn't do it without you. Uh, and, um, yeah, and of course we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And, uh, Angie, do you want to say that's a wrap? See you next season? That's a wrap. See you next season.